Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Have you ever heard of the movie City of God? Oh, yes. Oh, that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it, but you know that that's supposed to be you know send you know sending a message to somebody about hey, uh, you know color does make a difference. Brazil was the last country in the West to abolish slavery. By the time it did that in 1888, Rio de Janeiro had become the largest slave port in the Americas. As the city developed, the remains of the port disappeared under pavement. It was rediscovered six years ago, and now some Rio residents have created an app to experience its history. Catherine Osborne brings us this story. It was during a project to install light rail in Rio's port area when construction workers found the massive rectangular stones of the city's old slave dock still existed underground. An estimated 900,000 enslaved Africans were unloaded here at Valongo Wharf. Last week, UNESCO named the wharf a World Heritage Site, calling it, quote, the most important physical trace of the arrival of African slaves on the American continent. Giovanni Harvey is a local businessman who helped prepare the application to UNESCO. Harvey says the victory for Brazil's racial justice movement is part of remembering something that many people want to forget. During last year's Olympics, Rio's government directed tourists to the brand new $55 million Museum of Tomorrow. This, despite ongoing archaeological research at the dock and at a nearby grave for thousands who died on slave ships. Harvey is one of many Rio residents trying to get visitors to think differently. People have started to sort of take that preservation into their own hands. Mariana Samoys is a journalist at Publica, a nonprofit news site. Her team thought the port's history was so important that they designed a smartphone app around it in Portuguese and English. She says it's inspired by the Pokemon Go model of an augmented reality game. They call it the Museum of Yesterday. Samoys took me near the water's edge in the port area to show how it works. To actually unlock all of the contents of the app, you have to be physically in the port area. What do the icons look like? We got a paintbrush. Yeah, so you have each icon represents a different type of content. So for the paintbrush, that's the workshops of artists in the area. As we walk around, different icons pop up with tales of bribery schemes, ancient and modern, reports of activists tortured during Brazil's dictatorship, and... For sale, wet nurse, 
black. Recordings of old newspaper ads selling slaves. We have the Samba tour, we have the corruption tour, we have the tour of the Brazilian History Express, the terror tour, and we have the ghosts of the port areas past. Black activists here stress that remembering the biggest ghost, slavery, means not just remembering suffering, but resistance to it. That resistance plays a big role in the Museum of Yesterday app. Gabrielle Rosa, who helped research the app, is on the tour with us. She points out an icon for a quilombo, one of Brazil's many runaway slave communities. The app explains it's in the heart of a neighborhood historically known as Little Africa because the way people dressed, cooked, worshipped, and made music. Rio Samba music was born here from African drumming traditions, Rosa explained. Rosa is a member of the first black student organization at one of Rio's most prestigious universities. The group is only one year old. As we arrive at Volongo Wharf, she tells me Brazil is at the very beginning of understanding the relationship between slavery and its past and the corruption and inequality of today. Rosa says putting on your tennis shoes and taking a journey through the port is a good metaphor for the work of taking history seriously. Already, each afternoon, visitors come and sit quietly by the wharf's centuries-old stones. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Osborne in Rio de Janeiro. I'm here with Jim Bruner and Tale Times watchdog reporter Lewis Cam. We're going to talk about some new information uh, related to sexual abuse allegations against Seattle Mayor Ed Murray. They had a joint story last weekend with some of that new information. And before we get to what was in there, let's talk about, let's bring people up to date and sort of recap what's gone on on the story previously. So this all began in terms of the coverage in April, correct? When a man named Delvon Heckard filed a lawsuit against the mayor. Right. He filed initially under just his initials DH, but later identified himself as Delvon Heckard, a 46-year-old Kent man, filed a lawsuit alleging that he had been sexually abused by Ed Murray when he was a teenager in the 80s, roaming around Capitol Hill. He was addicted to drugs, said that Ed Murray paid him for sex. That lawsuit got filed. And that kind of blew this whole thing in the open. Right. And as the lawsuit was about to be filed, the two of you went back and did some reporting on some other allegations, similar in some ways allegations against Murray. Right. So um, in 2008, there were two other men, um, Jeff Simpson and Lloyd Anderson, who had uh, raised similar allegations about being uh, paid for sex as teenagers by the mayor. And um, also Jeff Simpson was the foster son of, of Mayor Murray. They uh, contacted various people, including the press, as well as lawmakers, um, trying, to, trying to make their allegations known. And at that time, the story didn't actually come out. But 
we went back and spoke with these two individuals and included some of the details of their allegations into uh, one large story that kind of brought out most of the allegations against the mayor. Right. And the mayor vehemently denied all of the allegations uh, that were reported and the claims in the lawsuit. And uh, there were several weeks of activity in in the lawsuit in that court case which we won't go into too much i think in this discussion but one thing that ultimately happened in the case was a fourth man levon jones signed a declaration in the heckard lawsuit saying that he too had had sex with the mayor when he when jones was a teenager correct that's right. And, um, you know, I did have an interview with him in jail. And ultimately what he said was very similar to what uh, Delvon Heckard said, except Quentin, uh, this was only a couple of times. And we should say the mayor, like you said, denied all this. And, of course, his lawyer brought out information saying, you know, challenging the account of Delvon Heckard and saying, you know, there's really no, no evidence of this. And then, you know, as we reported not too long ago, Ed Murray dropped out of the mayor's race, nevertheless, because of these allegations, still saying they're not true. Shortly after that, Delvon Heckard's lawsuit got withdrawn. His lawyer and he say they're going to refile it. So what's the new information uh, that we published in the story this past Sunday? So the new information really focuses on Jeff Simpson and his allegations in 1984 when he was uh, Murray's foster son. And, uh, you know, there was very scant information in terms of documents available in 2008 when he came forward. And so at that time, the Seattle Times opted not to run a story and other media opted not to run a story. Uh, the new information we came out was the state of Oregon, after we put in a records request, ultimately were able to find a file on the investigation of uh, Jeff Simpson's allegations against Murray back in 1984. A CPS investigator was assigned and ultimately concluded that uh, Murray had sexually abused, you know, Jeff Simpson. So to step back for a second, so there there wasn't a lot of documentation about what happened in 1984 when Simpson um, originally made his claims when he was still a teenager. But you thought that there would be uh, Child Protective Services documents, correct? We we thought for a long time that they didn't exist anymore. And in fact, when our reporters, other reporters in 2008 tried to get them, they were told by the state of Oregon, sorry, this is too too old. The records have been purged. They often purge records after a certain period of time. The lawyer that Jeff Simpson got to try to file a lawsuit against Ed Murray in 2007, 2008, also tried to get the records, and he was told the same thing. The only documentation prior to our story this weekend really was a notation that that uh, that some kind of case and investigation had been opened and looked at by the Multnomah County Prosecutor's Office, but that no charges were filed. Other than that, there was very little detail that we had. You knew that there had been a you CPS knew that there had been an investigation. And what, did the notation mention a CPS investigation? No, it didn't. It, it just said that there was a criminal case that went before a grand jury, and ultimately there were no charges filed. But you just figured, people figured that in this kind of case there would be a CPS investigation. Well, what what I knew from our notes from our previous reporters was that they had checked various agencies. One of the agencies they checked was the Department of Human Services, which uh, houses the uh, Child Protection Services in the state of Oregon. And I checked with him and I said, look, you, you know, would you have these files um, just generally, initially? And they said, well, according to our retention schedules, this is 
be something that is unlikely that we would have. But I felt it was necessary. We, we needed to check it out nonetheless. So I put in a formal records request asking not only for Jeff Simpson's foster file, but also for Ed Murray's foster file. They ultimately came back and said, Jeff Simpson's file doesn't exist, but we checked our field office and we found one for Ed Murray. And it took them several weeks to go through those records. And ultimately they redacted a lot of the information and withheld a bunch of documents. And that's when I appealed. And so talk about the appeal. What, what did, what, on what grounds did you appeal and how did you win the appeal? So ultimately what they said was that a lot of this information is either generally personally private under privacy exemptions or it's private under sexual abuse investigation exemptions. And what I challenged with that is that, uh, number one, it shouldn't be private because there's a prevailing public interest in this case. Uh, Ed Murray is a longtime public official. He's the mayor of a large U.S. city. Um, I also argued that, you know, he there was this recent lawsuit with Delvon Heckard that was ongoing and that um, these, this information had been covered um, by multiple news agencies across the country. And then I pointed out that, you know, Jeff Simpson has given us his authorization. And not only that, he's been out very vocal in the media uh, about this case. So he was waiving any sort of privacy. And, um, you know, the, the other thing I argued is in the law, there is a provision that will allow the release of records if you can show or demonstrate that there may be um, it, the release of the records will help prevent abuse or protect children. And ultimately, um, you know, the state of Oregon agreed with with my arguments. And to be clear, I think Lewis also learned that when when our reporters had asked previously and when others had asked back in 2008, it, part of the reason that no hit came up or no records came up is that the state of Oregon didn't index their records properly back then or that they didn't show up in a computer system and they changed their computer system several years ago to where they were now able to get a, a hit. Right. So in, in 2008, when our reporter would have asked for these records, apparently they had a different um, kind of tracking system for these kind of cases in which... Um, abuse investigations were tracked under the foster child's file. And uh, that changed in 2011 or around then when they, um, not only did they start actually digitizing their, you know, paper files, but they also started tracking some of these cases through the foster parent or provider file. And that's when they actually found it. Um, the other thing I would just add is then, um, you know, while this appeal was going on, we know that Delvon Hacker dropped his lawsuit. And the day he dropped his lawsuit, the mayor held a press conference. Um, and during that press conference, you know, it was a, it's a press conference and essentially he was claiming vindication and saying that this, look, this was all politically motivated. There was nothing there. As part of that press conference, he said, you know, uh, he, he was asked a question, well, what about the other allegations? And of course he started referencing um, Jeff Simpson's case and he, you know, he basically was critical of the press for not pressing hard enough or looking for records that he said existed that would show these allegations to be false. Um, I took some of that information. I forwarded it to the state of Oregon while they were considering my appeal. I sent a link to the um, press conference that the mayor made his statements. And ultimately, they came back and they, they agreed that we should see the records. 
Okay, so you got the records, and let's go into just a little bit of the details of those. You already mentioned that a CPS investigator uh, made a finding there was cause to believe Jeff Simpson uh, had been abused, but can you explain what the burden of proof is there and how it's different from a, a criminal investigation? Well, it's it's definitely a lower standard of proof than to obtain, for example, a criminal conviction. I think that there was a reasonable cause standard, and if, if you go into the agency regulations, they referred to it as like a preponderance of the evidence or that they believed it was more likely than not that this had occurred. It, this was all done with the Child Protective Services investigator along with a Portland police detective. You know, they interviewed Jeff Simpson. They, they, they looked at some statements that were given by witnesses who were trying to defend Ed Murray, who said that they didn't, they didn't believe the allegations. They also talked with some people back then who, who Jeff had told prior to this investigation that Ed Murray had abused him. So they looked at all that information and made their conclusion. Meanwhile, the prosecutor was looking at, you know, had a grand jury, was looking at whether to indict Ed Murray, but withdrew the case before the grand jury could even vote on whether to indict. But another document that was in this package that you got back recently was a letter from a prosecutor uh, of the case explaining why yeah. they dropped. So you had the CPS report that said, we, we think that this happened. And then the letter from the prosecutor explaining why they didn't pursue the charges said basically that the, the alleged victim, Jeff Simpson, was was very troubled. I think they described him as manipulative. They said he had run away again, so he wasn't available. And, you know, he would have presented some credibility problems going to a grand jury or going to forth in a criminal trial. But at the end of the letter, the, the assistant deputy or the assistant district attorney in, in Portland said, however, this does not mean we believe his allegations are false or that we somehow have determined that they're not true. And that cut against some statements that the mayor and his lawyers had made that said, you know, that they had determined that these things basically were discredited or false. Now, there were also things that these documents don't, they don't include. Well, uh, yeah, they, we don't have the full case file from the district attorney, obviously, but we do have a letter uh, that she sent to CPS basically explaining her reasoning for dropping the case. And it wasn't about whether she had determined if it was true or not. Uh, we, there's also a, a foster abuse report summary. So after this determination was made by the, the CPS folks, um, the foster division that handles certifying foster parents and that sort of thing looked at all of the information and said, based upon this, uh, we believe that, uh, you know, that under no circumstances should Mr. Murray be a, a certified foster parent in the state of Oregon again. As part of that report, they indicate that, um, you know, on background that they believe with uh, CPS believed Jeff Simpson and the DA's office believed Jeff Simpson. So there is a positive, you know, an affirmative statement of belief in that report. What we don't know is how they knew that, whether they're basing that on the CPS letter alone or whether there were offline conversations back then between the prosecutor's office and the uh, CPS or DHS folks. And was Ed Murray interviewed at this time by investigators? No. There in the in the file there's also a detective report what the basically what the Portland detective did as part of his work on pressing a poss possible criminal case and he was working again with the CPS investigator and he notified of course Ed Murray at one point that this he was under investigation and said you need to call and schedule an interview or you or your lawyer need to 
and uh, Ed Murray had had a lawyer call back and say he's too ups- emotionally upset and can't do this. And so there's no indication in, in the report that he was ever interviewed, although the police did want to interview him. And j- just to be clear about how the process worked. So when Jeff, Jeff Simpson spent a year and a half under Ed Murray's foster care, um, he also knew him previous to that uh, when he lived in a children's home. After Jeff Simpson was removed from Ed's home for reasons with to do with drug and behavioral problems and having to seek drug treatment, he went to a group home, and this is where he first made his allegations against Murray. A social worker took his report, and basically there was a screening done that looked at the allegations and said, should these be more fully investigated or not? At that point, there was a determination made that, yes, there's possible child abuse here. These need to be referred. When they referred that case out, it was made into a joint investigation between the police department and CPS. So this is considered a joint investigation. So some of the information that's um, being obtained at this time is being obtained by the Portland Police Department and not just CPS. So CPS is using a lot of the criminal element or the criminal investigation elements in its own report. And part of that was uh, when the detective went to Murray and said, I want to interview you, um, you know, and he declined to be interviewed. Right. And so these documents provided a much fuller picture than you had before about what happened with Simpson's allegations back in 1984. Then you sat down with the mayor for a good amount of time and shared the information with him and talked to him about it. What was his response? One of the main points he made, first of all, and we've kind of touched on this, but I think it's important. He said he didn't know about the CPS finding. You know, it was never given to him, which seems like an odd thing when there's a finding of that sort. And in fact, now I think Oregon requires that if there is a finding of that sort, that the foster parent is notified. So he said he he didn't see it. And that if he had known about that finding, that he would have appealed it at the time, but he didn't know about it. So that, that was one of the first points that he made to us. We asked the mayor if he would, you know, if he was interested in appealing now, and he said he didn't want to. Okay. So he said he isn't interested in appealing, at least at this time. And he said he didn't know about this, this CPS finding, but what did he say about the well, questions that the new information yeah, he, he, raised? He and his attorney tried, you know, they downplayed this information basically and said, look, you know, you have it backwards. The, mo- the most important thing is that he wasn't even charged, much less convicted of any crime. And he said, of course, there would have been a CPS investigation. You know, that's why there was a DA's investigation. He repeated that he did nothing wrong, didn't abuse Jeff Simpson. And, you know, he, he said, uh, other than the salacious nature of this, he didn't even see what the story was here. All right. So you heard from the mayor and then also heard from Simpson about this as well. Right. We contacted Jeff and obviously he, you know, he provided us permission to get his file. And, um, you know, when we were looking through this, we, we kind of uh, wanted to really take a hard look at this, talk to the mayor, get, get this in front of the mayor and have him be able to sit down and talk to us. But ultimately we called him. He told us he'd never heard of this file before. They tried to get the records before, told just like the Seattle Times was in 2008. He and his attorney were told they didn't exist. And, you know, he was, uh, fair to say, he was 
very surprised and, and elated, and I think. He was gratified that, that records existed that showed that, you know, at least some of the investigators who looked at his case back then believed him. The new information is out there now, and uh, the various people involved have responded. But Ed Murray is still mayor of our city. On the move, before you begin, let me ask the question. Have you ever looked at children at play? First, you observe their total concentration with an intensity that is all-consuming. Second, you notice their boundless energy as they run, 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 wrapped in a cocoon of play. What that teaches us is that young people are bundles of energy, both physical and mental. Why is this important to us? Because our studies reveal that youth are natural conductors of revolutionary energy. Indeed, their very being are suffused in a revolutionary process of transformation as they change from childhood to adulthood. Revolution bubbles in the very bones of the young. And as they change, they spark change in their environments. Indeed, they give life force to social change. In science, when molecules speed up movement, this process changes energy into heat. Similarly, when social movements agitate in static societies, they radiate excitement. They bring heat. Heat is the element that creates the conditions for change. For when we cook, we change raw materials into food we can digest. When we work out and exercise, we turn fat into muscle. And yes, when we have sex, we bring forth new life. That's cooking, ain't it? I think so, right? When we struggle, we cook up social change. If we do it hard enough, hot enough, we make revolution. Total social change can be born. The youth make revolution. They always have and always will. Before I depart, a few words from the great black revolutionary, Dr. Franz Fanon, who worked himself to death on behalf of the Algerian revolution. Now, because I don't have the text before me, I must try to recount it from memory. He said, every generation must, out of relative obscurity, find their destiny and fulfill it or betray it. Dr. Franz Fanon. So think about that. On the move, long live John Africa, the youth make the revolution from imprisoned nation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Have you forgotten that once we were brought here, we were robbed of our names, robbed of our language. We lost our religion, our culture, our gods. And many of us, by the way we act, we even lost our minds. Staying with healthcare, we turn now to a new report on Alzheimer's disease. African Americans are twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia compared to those who are white. NPR's John Hamilton reports on new research that's helping to explain the disparity. Scientists have struggled to understand why African Americans have such a high risk of dementia. As a group, they are more likely to have conditions like high blood pressure and diabetes, which can affect the brain, and there is some evidence that genetic factors play a role. 
But Rachel Whitmer of Kaiser Permanente's Division of Research in Northern California says her own research shows that those explanations are incomplete. These risk factors were taken into account, and we still saw these differences. So there is still something there that we are trying to get at. So Whitmer and other researchers have been looking at less obvious risk factors, like stress and poverty. She says it's already clear that children who grow up in a harsh environment are more likely to have health problems like diabetes and heart disease. We're starting to sort of understand how early life stress and early life deprivation can increase your risk of a number of health outcomes in late life. And I think the latest thing now is understanding how and why that might affect the brain. Whitmer was part of a team that studied more than 6,000 Kaiser Permanente health plan members in their 80s and 90s. The team wanted to know whether people who'd grown up in harsher conditions were more likely to develop dementia. So they looked at people who'd been born in states with high infant mortality rates, an indicator of social problems like poverty. They present their results today at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in London. The study found that white people's risk of dementia wasn't affected by their place of birth. But Whitmer says black people were 40 percent more likely to develop dementia if they'd been born in a state with high infant mortality. These people left the state and subsequently moved to Northern California, yet there still was this very robust association between being born in a state with high infant mortality and an increased risk of dementia. A separate study looked at the link between stressful life events and mental function in middle age. Megan Zielsdorf from the University of Wisconsin in Madison says participants answered questions like, When you were a child, did a parent drink so much that it caused problems? Did your parents divorce? Did you have trouble in school? Zielsdorf says participants also reported stressful experiences they had as adults, things like a serious illness or the death of a child. And African Americans reported 60 percent more stressful events than white Americans. But Zielsdorf says that was only part of the difference. The impact of these stressful events was stronger in African-Americans than it was in non-Hispanic white participants. Each stressful event is more detrimental. The researchers tested the brain's speed and flexibility, things that normally decline with age. The test showed that in white participants, each stressful event added about a year and a half to normal brain aging. In African-Americans, each event added about four years. Zielsdorf says this all may sound discouraging, but it also means there's a possible solution. The increased risk seems to be a matter of experience rather than ancestry. And this is something we can change. In other words, by improving the early lives of African Americans, it may be possible to reduce the risk of dementia later on. John Hamilton, NPR News. magazine has seen a hashtag with its name trending on social media this summer. The hashtag is Ebony Owes, as in it owes money to freelance writers. The legendary publication founded by and for black Americans has had a tough couple of years. It has dealt with dwindling subscriptions and the general downturn in the magazine industry. Its parent company has sold the magazine and its landmark Chicago building. Karen Grigsby-Bates of our Code Switch team has this report about writers who contributed to Ebony and are waiting for their paycheck. 
Los Angeles writer Liz Dwyer wrote three articles for Ebony for its February issue, which looked at the future of black Americans under new President Donald Trump. She was thrilled to do it. Ebony is one of those historical publications that you grew up, you know, seeing on your grandma's coffee table or your parents' coffee table. And it was, for me growing up, one of the only places that I regularly saw myself and my parents reflected in it. Dwyer saw no money for months, then finally got a check this week, one of three writers who were paid in full. She says it's especially galling that this treatment came from a magazine she revered as a cultural icon. Adrian Samuels Gibbs agrees. It's really, really, really tough to say anything about a black company when you are going to be interpreted as criticizing it. Gibbs is a Chicago-based writer and journalist. She left a Boston newspaper to return to her hometown to work for Ebony, first as a staffer, then as a freelancer. Gibbs oversaw the popular commemorative Obama cover issue that ran last December. She says she did it for love of the magazine, but she didn't plan to do it for free or for the partial payment she's just received. And she dismisses people who say the writer's demands for payment are embarrassing a beloved piece of black culture. No one is trying to tear down a black institution that means the world to black America and to the larger citizenship of the diaspora. But you still have to pay what you owe. A year ago, an African-American private equity firm, Clearview Group, or CVG, bought Ebony. This week, after a prominent social media campaign called Hashtag Ebony O's and pressure from the National Writers Union, checks for partial payment have begun to slowly arrive in some writers' mailboxes. CVG's principals did not return NPR's calls for comment. In February, they hosted a lavish Super Bowl party and this month held a big blowout for the BET Awards. If there's money for those things, the writers ask, why not them? So, after months of being stonewalled, a group of unpaid writers jointly went to the National Writers Union for help. I can tell you, you know, we have some experience with this, and uh, they're not going to get away with it. Larry Goldbetter, president of the union, says there's been an industry-wide epidemic of non-payment to writers for the past few years. So, unfortunately, the situation of Ebony's contributors is not unique. What's unique here is that these 30 writers at Ebony have taken a stand, and they stood together. Liz Dwyer says even though she finally got a check, she's going to continue to press for Ebony to pay all its writers. Freelancers need to receive what they're due, she says, even if they're not hurting financially. Even if all they wanted to do was set that money on fire, they did that work. It's owed to them. Last week, the Writers' Union announced it will sue Ebony and CVG to recover the entire amount still owed the Ebony writers. Karen Grigsby Bates, NPR News. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you'll lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. The town of Clayton has a lot going for it and is generally regarded as a great place to live, shop, and go to school. Its present has overshadowed a past that shows another part to the Clayton story. That past is the subject of a short documentary titled Displaced and Erased. It tells how a once-flourishing African-American community was elbowed out to make room for what is now Clayton's commercial center. 
Joining me to talk about it are Emma Riley, the director of Displaced and Erased. She's a former Clayton High School student. Her former teacher, Donna Rogers-Beard, is a historian and retired history teacher at Clayton High School. And Dr. Reverend Doris Graham is a former Clayton resident featured in the documentary. Thanks you all so much for being with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. I think this story is going to come as a surprise to a lot of people. And Emma, I'll start with you. Can you give me really a Cliff Notes version of Mm -hmm. what happened and when? Yeah, sure. So um, this community, this black community in Clayton, was a part of Clayton from Clayton's beginnings. Um, The first postmaster of Clayton was black. um, And there was an African-American school called Attucks Elementary. um, And... This community was a part of Clayton until around the 1950s, coinciding with the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. um, People started to buy up properties, and um, the City Planning Commission of Clayton talked about um, intentions to get rid of this area and replace it, rezone it for commercial purposes in 1958. And so this community was slowly uh, displaced throughout the 50s and 60s and was basically gone by the 70s. How large a community are we talking about? Donna, I think you can answer that. I think at, at its peak, it hit its peak in the 1940s. Right. And so we're talking about 450 people. Donna, and, what what brought you to your research in this subject? It was accidental. Huh. I was reading the memoirs of Adele Starbert, and she happens to mention the first postmaster in Clayton and how her grandmother, uh, old prominent Clayton family. Her grandmother led the boycott of the post office until this postmaster was removed in 1897. She wanted the black postmaster removed? Yes, the first appointed by McKinley. And then she talks about how comfortable, though, her grandmother and her mother were with her riding on the grocery wagon with a man named Coleman. So I that story kind of stayed in the back of my mind, and then I started teaching at Clayton in uh, 1991, and they were celebrating the 100th year of the school district, and then the attic school came up, and I realized, <laughs> oh my goodness, there was a, a, a black community going back some time in Clayton. So that started, and I've been working on it since then. Uh, a book is going to be forthcoming. I yes. think I read somewhere <laughs> yes. from that. I mean, Emma, let me come back to you. What is the, the actual area that we're talking about? There, there are boundaries we can name that people would, would know. Yeah, sure. So um, the majority of this population, this community, was between Hanley and Brentwood. Um, specifically, also, there was a more dense uh, part of this community between Hanley and Bemiston on the blocks of Carondelet and Bonhami. The the, uh, the the story is that the people who lived there were, were zoned out, Donna. Um, I use the expression elbowed out. Are they, they, they mean the same thing in, in your mind? Yes, urban renewal, which was a very important part of the late 40s, early 50s. And Clayton, Brentwood, Webster Groves, Kirkwood, all were, there were victims there were people who were displaced, who lost their homes as a result of that time. How quickly did, did it happen? It seems to happen over a period of about five to ten years. So we see it uh, first happening with property being uh, bought 
and then finally zoning laws and then uh, in the little eminent domain going there, and then that whole community's gone. Doris, were you aware at the time of what was happening and, and, and why? I was aware because by the time I was third grade, I had moved into the city uh, with my mother and, and my stepfather. At what year would this have been? Uh, let's see. I was in third grade. I was born 1945, so Emma, do the, the math. It, well, it, it would have been in the 50s when <laughs> yes, the, all this was going on. That's, yes, that's uh, what I was getting But at. I always kept in <laughs> touch with, with my uh, friends and my family members mm-hmm. in Clayton. And so when uh, First Baptist Church of Clayton, I was told they had to move off of Brentwood Boulevard because uh, there was going to be a big high-rise being built there. And, and my mother, I mean my aunt, Annie B. Severe was like a, a, a very staunch member of that church, and I would hear conversation from her and other women that belong to the county, a county women's union uh, discuss about not wanting to leave their church because they had roots there, and but eventually they had to move, and they did move uh, into the city on Union and Terry. But their charter said they had to keep the name Clayton Missionary Baptist Church. Uh-huh. Um, the the people who were moved and relocated, though, they, Emma got f- fair prices for their houses, I read. I mean, it was, can it any, in any sense be called fair as a re- mm-hmm. because of that? Yeah, I think that that's a questionable topic because, I mean, if you look at what that property is worth now, you know, and what what these people lost out on and the fact that they didn't really want to leave. And I think that this has greater implications for, you know, how wealth is transferred from generation to generation, because these weren't just black people who are renting. They were property owners. And, you know, so many so many people acquire wealth and come into wealth through transferring property down the line. And it just seems like these people lost out on that opportunity. It was a solid middle-class community, from what I, what I can gather. It was. And, Donna, what happened? I mean, there was there was property there. We talked about the attic school. There were obviously homes where they just kind of plowed under to make room for what we see now. Yes. <laughs> so if we look at the the First Baptist Church of Clayton, we have a church that began in 1893, mm-hmm. and there today is the Barclay House, and there's just no evidence that it existed there. So we have the whole community there all the way, as Emma said, to Hanley, and thank goodness we do now have a, black, a plaque, thanks to sure. Don Sente, who yes. was superintendent of schools, oh, sure. and, and Mayor Uchatel at the time. We got a plaque placed at the site of the old attic school, the yes, colored school yes. of mm-hmm. Clayton. We had a wonderful reunion oh, it of, was wonderful. of <laughs> the graduates of the attic school. Uh, but the stories, there was, there was not a dry eye in the house that day. As mm-hmm. we, we had a reception afterwards as people talked about growing up in that community. Mm-hmm. Was there any organized resistance to this whole process? Does not seem to be. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to interesting Webster Groves, uh, we do find some fighting back. The same thing is about to happen to them. Kirkwood, we find fighting back uh, at about the same time. But the community in Clayton, which I misspoke, it was about 300 at its height, just does not have the numbers 
and the political clout to fight back. Yeah. Emma, I, I don't know if this is your line, but I, I saw the film and, and enjoyed it. It was most, most uh, informative. Um, but somewhere along the line, someone said that this community was suffocated out of uh, out of existence. <laughs> is that your line? But how, how would you describe describe it beyond that? Hmm. I mean, I think that was, that Donna, was Donna's who originally line. used no, Donna, the word well, suffocate. Pardon me. Mis- misattribution. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what I said. I mean, yeah. it's a slow suffocating experience. Mm-hmm. And there are intentions to do this, too. I mean, whether or not... Um, uh, you know, we can't look back and figure out exactly what their intentions were, but we can look back at the planning documents. And I reviewed some of those. I've reviewed a lot of those for my documentary. Um, Harlan Bartholomew and Associates is the architecture company that gives recommendations to the City Planning Commission. And when you look back at those reports, um, you know, you read things like, um, let's see. The real progress will be made in securing the interest and support of property owners. The city should take the initiative in assembling the land using condemnation where necessary for its acquisition and in organizing support and action by the property owners. And so Harlan Bartholomew and Associates had a heavy hand in a lot of the stuff that happened in Clayton and the city of St. Louis, but they have a nationwide reputation for, you know, talking about the danger of slums and um, suggesting commercial plans to replace um, housing where predominantly black people and poor people lived. And, you know, that's amazing to read that because where I live, there were no slums up and down Bonham hmm. or Bonhami hmm. and Carondelet. My aunt uh, lived around the corner on, on Carondelet where we now see that beautiful uh, Ritz-Carlton Hotel. She lived right up the street from there. And um, But, you know, people make up things to get what they want. Financial freedom, my only hope. Fuck living rich and dying broke. Researchers at Vanderbilt University and also the University of Memphis looked at the issue of regressive taxation. These are basically fines and citations that local law enforcement collect in order to make up for lost revenue. And they realized that mm, there are certain types of neighborhoods that usually suffer the most when it comes to regressive taxes. Now, here's what they found. Using data from more than 9,000 cities, the researchers found that cities with larger black populations rely more on fines and court fees to raise revenue. The average collection was about $8 per person for all cities that get at least some revenue from fines and fees, but that rose to as much as $20 per person in the cities with the highest black populations. Now, they made sure to control for certain factors, including uh, crime rates and also the city size. Uh, But they did find uh, that having at least one black person on the city council had a positive impact on these fees and fines. Uh, It actually reduced the relationship between race and fines by about 50 percent. So obviously having someone represent your demographic in the city council is incredibly important. So a couple of things that we get out of this. First of all, notice how we're race baiting by creating facts that have uh, been in place for a long, long time. So the right wing will say, ah, why are you bringing up facts? Facts are really annoying. Mm -hmm. And if they show that there is racial bias in the country, 
we won't blame the reality. We yeah. won't try to change the reality. We'll blame you for pointing out the reality. So, and we'll call that race bait. So let me jump in with something, okay? Um, the researchers here didn't go into this looking specifically at race. They went into this to, to see how regressive taxation works uh, community by community. And then they noticed that, you know, neighborhoods with uh, a larger black demographic usually suffer the most from these types of fines or these citations. And yes, I think race or racial bias has something to do with it. But more importantly, being powerless has a lot to do with it. So Anna, that's exactly where I was going with this. Yeah. But well, the reason I started with the way that I did is that, so no matter what the reason is, the effect that it has is one that affects African Americans worse. So pointing that out doesn't mean everybody in the country is a bad person, okay? It just means that's a reality for African Americans that if you're not African American, you don't have to deal with. So the fact that you don't have to deal with it doesn't make it not true. It is true, it's empirically true, okay? Now, Anna's right, it, this is really about power. And the second part of the story proves that out as well. So the reason why this happens is not because people get together in a global racist conspiracy and they go, let's charge black people more because we hate black people. Wow, hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. The reason why this happens is not because people get together in a global racist conspiracy and they go, let's charge black people more because we hate black people. No, they usually do it unconsciously because they know, hey, if we do this, we'll be able to get away with it. And if we do that, we won't be able to get away with it. So if we start increasing fines in rich areas, some of those rich people are judges, prosecutors, uh, or simply powerful in the community. And they're going to complain. And it's going to be a big problem for us. If we do it in poor neighborhoods, well, it's not going to be as big a problem. Now, unfortunately... African Americans on average in America uh, have, or live in uh, some cities uh, that are uh, have socioeconomic condition that is n not at the at the high end of the income bracket, obviously, right? So that is why it affects African Americans more. Right. So they think, okay, if these folks can't fight back, let's just make money that way. And if I have to increase tax on the rich, they are going to fume. They're going to be. Limited about it, they're going to send lobbyists and all their bought politicians, etc. If I get revenue from people who can't do a damn thing about it, well, that's easy revenue for me, and I'll get to crush the powerless. Yes, it's easy revenue, and you're right. They don't have a lobbying group protecting them, but more importantly, they don't have the resources to fight these citations in court. So oftentimes, they'll get the citations, they'll get the fees, and the city gets to make its money without worrying about anyone really fighting back. And this is, yes, there's a racial component to it, but more importantly, Everyone who is not wealthy is impacted by this, right? We see regressive taxation everywhere. We see it here in Los Angeles. Um, you know, in California, back in 1978, they passed a proposition, Prop 13, I believe, that severely, severely limited uh, the revenue that the state raised through property taxes. And also it led to um, a, you needed a two-thirds majority in the state in order to increase taxes. Since we lost so much revenue, what do you think happened? Citations, like parking citations, cops, you know, trolling the streets, looking for people who, uh, you know, make minor infractions while they're driving. That shot up.
Um, and so, yes, again, there's a racial component, but more importantly, we're all affected by this. Real quick, though, um, uh, I wanted to quickly mention that after Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson, the U.S. Department of Justice released a report validating many of these concerns. The March 2015 report found that city officials work together at every level of enforcement, from city management to local prosecutor to the police department, to make as much money from fines and court fees as possible, ranging from schemes to raise total fines for municipal code violations to asking cops to write as many citations as possible. So this is not good. And I want to give you a quote from a cop. When you put any type of numbers on a police officer to perform, we're going to go to the most vulnerable. We're going to go to the LGBT community. We're going to go to the black community. We're going to go to those people that have no boat and have no power. Damn, that right there is so telling. And so when progressives fight back against this stuff or African Americans fight back against this stuff. They're actually fighting for all poor and middle class people. All the people that the powerful, whether it's big government or big business, decide I'm gonna do I'm I'm gonna get money from you because I can. There's nothing you could do about it. So it is imperative for all of us to fight back together and so that they don't crush the powerless. And so what this is in effect is wealth redistribution. But they're distributing the money from the poor and the middle class to the rich. So they get to share in the services, but they cut taxes on the rich so they pay less. And they increase fines and fees on the poor and the middle class so we all pay more. So understand what that is and why it's happening so that we can actually, as Americans, all fight back against it. You have any idea what a burden you people are on the taxpayer? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. Because of his excellent academic record, I'm going to give him a light sentence this time. But if I ever see your son in the courtroom again, I'm going to lock him up and throw away the key. I'm going to lock you up with him. What did he give you, blood? Three months, man. What you doing in here anyway? You ought to be home with your mama. How old are you, boy? Thirteen. Thirteen? During our interview in his office in the Rainier Valley, the cell phone on the table in front of Dominique Davis buzzes constantly. Text messages, phone calls. Hey, let me take this real Go quick. This is one, I'm doing a summer class in a few minutes. I'm starting my first summer school. Davis is in hey, high demand. Kids filter in and out of his office. His organization is Community Passageways. Davis and his team there mentor black youth who are at risk or detained. We have to take the initiative to show them that no, there's some real powerful, positive black people out here that's willing to help and take you to another level and grab you by the hand and show you the process on how to get there. And it needs to be culturally relevant. And yet when black kids do get in trouble, they enter into a predominantly white system. Davis believes that makes it easy to lose hope. You never see yourself through the whole system. Right? And then where do you see yourself at? When you get locked up. That's the only place you see yourself at. In, a, in large numbers. That's a subliminal message that I belong in here. 17-year-old Deontay Moore Lyons agrees with that. He's currently incarcerated at Green Hill School in Chehalis after pleading guilty to assault. He was charged as an adult after he shot another teen during a fight over a misplaced hair pick. Green Hill is the state's maximum security facility for juveniles. 
I like to see somebody who actually been through the struggle and actually been in the streets as I could look forward up to because, you know, it feels good to see somebody like me that actually, you know, did something with their life and been successful with their life. It gives me, like, a sense of motivation. At Green Hill and other state detention facilities, nearly all the counselors, security staff, kitchen staff, health center staff, recreation staff, and psychologists are white. In a closed environment, experts say that racial imbalance can be a complex soup of implicit bias and microaggressions that subtly convey racism. You could be giving, um, as a staff member, unintentionally, but very importantly and potently, giving messages about what you expect of a kid who's of a certain race versus another race. Antoinette Cavanaugh is a forensic clinical psychologist in Chicago who specializes in juvenile justice. She points to a study that showed black youth in detention are disciplined more harshly and are less likely to get mental health care. And what they found out in the facility was despite the level that their mental health needs were at the same level, the white kids received more services. That's an institutionalized racism there. Like many young black men, Moore Lyons struggles with trauma. He takes medication but would like more help managing his mental health. What kind of things do they help me with? Yeah. Do you guys, do you just have a regular therapy session where you just talk it out? Nope. No. You don't get any mental health therapy? Nope. Do you need it? Yeah. Greenhill won't specifically discuss Moore Lyons' case, but Acting Superintendent Jennifer Redmond says that when youth are sentenced to Greenhill, their mental health and education needs are evaluated. Each youth has an assigned counselor who works with them on building social skills, regulating emotions, and managing relationships. Kavanaugh says trainings can help white staff do better, but the trainings need to be robust, and states need to be willing to look systemically for answers. In 2010, Washington began that work to address disparity and disproportionality across the juvenile justice system. Hiring staff of color is still a challenge because the state detention facilities are located in rural areas. But by 2016, 98% of justice staff had completed diversity and inclusion training. Jennifer Redmond says they had more training this spring. It was a lot of self-reflection, a lot of how we apply it to working with the youth, um, and, um, you know, really just understanding, kind of like I said, meeting youth where they're at, trying to understand their background, and um, kind of treating them through that lens. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, we got work to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That becomes apparent just a few minutes later when Redmond said this when asked about how well staff do working with a disproportionately black population. I'm working with Deontay as an individual who got in trouble. And so for us, it's all about just working with youth in a way that um, um, is culturally competent and almost um, is race invisible to an extent. Dominic Davis says he hears this a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that makes me laugh because when people say things like that, they mean it from their heart, but that's their brain. Their brainwashing. I'm not racist. I don't see color. That's just a whole nother level of racism. And while it may be well-intentioned, Davis says that kind of thinking won't help kids like Deontay Moore Lyons succeed in or out of incarceration. He says if state and local leaders are serious about addressing racial disparity and juvenile justice, they have to get serious about addressing the problems of cultural competency. You have people that are talking the language, 
because restorative justice and equity and and racial disparities and all those words are being thrown out all over the place. That we're we're in a good time right now to take advantage of that, right? But it comes down to are you gonna put your money where your mouth is? Anyway, yeah. I'm gonna let you go soon. Yeah, I gotta go to my class. Yeah, it's yeah. eleven thirty. Oh, and with that, Davis had to run. His phone was vibrating again and he was running late for his next appointment. In the meantime, 17-year-old Deontay Moore Lyons is trying to get through his time at Green Hill. Recently, he found a reason for the kind of hope Dominic Davis tries to instill in the youth he works with. While participating in a panel discussion about youth incarceration, a black youth advocate from Tacoma offered to help Moore Lyons find his path after release in 2020. I actually gave my mom his phone number, so hopefully when I at least get to the group home, I can get in contact with him. Hopefully you don't forget about me, though. I'm Patricia Murphy, KUOW News. Once again, police being up on people. Back up right here. Back up and get on that step, okay? Back up. All he did was break up a fight. And this is what happens for breaking up a fight. This is a disgrace. This is a test in this city. And we intend to keep the pressure on. Let's continue to show this nation who we are. Continue to show this country who we are. Three years ago today, Eric Garner died on Staten Island after being put in a chokehold by an NYPD officer. That officer, Daniel Pantaleo, who is white, was not indicted by a Staten Island grand jury and remains on the force today. Here to discuss the repercussions of this is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for allowing me to have this discussion with you. The Eric Garner case uh, came at a really divisive time for police community relations, not just in New York, but in the country. And before you became Brooklyn Borough President, you were an NYPD officer. How would you compare policing in the years before and after Eric Garner's death? When you look at what happened then and now across the country, we have not made major strides. I think that we're starting some very creative things here in New York City. Uh, but for the most part, there still is a level of denial of how to confront what people bring with them to the police department. That baggage, how do we remove what people think and those stereotypes uh, that they have and change the direction on policing in the country? In the midst of that denial and that baggage, we've had the deaths of several African-Americans at the hands of NYPD officers since Eric Garner's death. Akai Gurley, Deborah Danner, Delron Small, just to name a few. Say more about why you think this is still happening. Part of what police uh, departments are doing across the country, and I saw this when I was in the police academy, we only see blue, we only see good and bad, we don't see color, we don't see race, we don't see ethnicity. What a lie. And if you train on that foundation to believe that here I came from a community where uh, there are no blacks, no Asians, no Hispanics, uh, no Muslims, and now I'm going to place you inside those communities to enforce laws without letting you deal with the biases you have internally, then I set you up for failure, and that is what you see. You can't just use the hammer in Brownsville and use every tool you have 
in the Upper East Side or in a prestigious, economically uh, stable community. That is the heart of the problems that we're facing. The Eric Gardner scenario was a condition. They immediately took out the hammer and used the, the, the hammer approach to correcting that condition, and that's what you're seeing across America. So when Mayor de Blasio said today, quote, thanks to the tireless efforts of NYPD, New York City is the safest big city in America. Every New York City neighborhood deserves the same quality of service and safety we've come to expect from NYPD. What's your response to that? I think that um, this mayor, unlike the previous two mayors, um, is moving in the right direction. Uh, there was an environment created under the Bloomberg administration and the Giuliani administration where police and public saw themselves as separate entities in certain communities. Uh, and that wall is slowly coming down with some of the inter- interactions that are being done daily. It's not an instant fix when you have 20-plus uh, years of negative interactions. You're not going to all of a sudden trust a person in that blue uniform or trust a person in those blue jeans automatically. And we are moving in, a, in, a, in the direction to do that. We're not there now. And it's premature to say that all is well. That is not a reality, but we are closer to that reality more than we ever were. And yet, Officer Daniel Pantaleo is still employed with the NYPD, and Justice Department officials have yet to resolve their investigation into Garner's death. What do you make of this lack of closure? Are we stuck? There is no reason the officer who was involved in administering the choco should still be a police officer. Uh, the decision was made on a local level that he was not going to be prosecuted by the Staten Island District Attorney. The administrative char- char- charge inside the police department is a different standard. Um, the actions of that officer using that chokehold in a manner for an offense where Eric Gardner was not being aggressive, um, that is enough to say that that officer should at a minimum no longer be a police officer based on his actions. That was incorrect. Eric Adams is the Brooklyn Borough President. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You're a cop. You can torment freely and see me valley, then seize it out, then beam proudly. Turn a routine traffic stop to your season finale when you're a cop. You can shoot a motherfucker by the trailer park. Plenty evidence, sure defense will be razor sharp. Then turn around and taste a perp for a blazing perp. I'm a cop. Back in April of this year, a 15-year-old by the name of Jordan Edwards was at a house party with friends. Now, cops were called to that house party. I'm a cop. And he and his friends decided to get into the car and drive away so they don't get into any trouble, I'm guessing. And while they were driving away, a cop uh, by the name of Roy D. Oliver II decided to open fire into that vehicle, which led to the shooting death of 15-year-old Jordan Edwards. Now, uh, when Oliver released a statement in regard to what happened that night, he claimed that the car was driving in his direction, which put him in imminent harm. However, uh, surveillance indicated that that is not what happened. The car was driving away from him when he decided to open fire. Now, uh, here is the interesting update to this story, and it is a unique update because we don't hear this happen often. The former police officer in this Dallas suburb was indicted by a grand jury on a murder charge for fatally shooting an unarmed black high school freshman in April. 
with a high-powered rifle as the teenager and four others drove away from a house party. He's also indicted on four counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon by a public servant. And if you think those charges are in connection to what happened to Jordan Edwards, you would be wrong. That actually has to do with a separate incident where he was off-duty in plain clothes and happened to get into a car accident and allegedly uh, threatened the person that he got into an accident with, with his weapon. So he's facing charges for that as well. Now, if convicted of murder, Mr. Oliver, who's 37 years old, could face a prison term of five to 99 years uh, or life, the same charge, uh, the same range as the aggravated assault charges. Five to 99 years, it's a small window. I know, it's really weird what? Uh, how there's that huge disparity there. I don't but- know what it's like there. I know in, in California, it's like they do it in tiers. So mm-hmm. they'll be like, the judge will make a recommendation to say like this is the lower tier, middle tier, and higher tier of, of sentencing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, come on, it was my reaction. This guy, we monitor so much in this country. Mm-hmm. We monitor the behavior of people online, things get flagged, you get put on lists. This guy allegedly got in an accident and pulled out his gun mm-hmm. on someone before this happened, while he was off duty. That's right. That's a red flag. You know, it's interesting because right? I, I, I think about the double standard that every single person who's not a cop has to deal with. And I think yes. it's a double standard that makes sense. So, for instance, strike one. <laughs> um, Jake and I are close, right? And I feel like I can argue with him and I can say whatever I need to say and I don't have to worry about retaliation. However, if news broke that I pulled out a gun on someone that I had gotten into an accident with, pretty sure Jake would really consider or reconsider my position here at TYT, right? Because it doesn't seem like I have, you know, I'm in the right mental state to do my job. But for some reason with cops, it's like, oh, pulled a gun? I mean, did she piss you off though? Yeah. You know, it's absurd. These are people who are given the title of protecting and serving. And you don't protect and serve by losing your temper at the scene of an accident and threatening someone's life with a gun, allegedly. Yeah, and I mean, guy was in Iraq. I don't know what's happening. If he had some kind of traumatic event while he was there. Um, Let's figure it out and then communicate what we figured out to all of us. So I can then see stories like this and they say... This per this off-duty police officer was uh, is undergoing counseling, or I don't see something like this. Or when I see a then if I see a story that says was it an accident, pulled a gun on someone, then that person was put into counseling, taken off the beat, yeah. fired from his job. You know, isn't allowed to just like have a gun because he seems to pull it on people when he right. gets in an accident with him. Stop it there at worst. Don't let it keep going. Don't let the instinct be, well, you know, he's one of us. He got a gun. It's different for him. I don't want this third time because the third time's a harm. Right. Third time's when he pulls a gun, not just any gun, an AR-15, and just starts shooting. At a car at that's a, driving away from him. With in, which with perceived impunity. It's crazy. I don't like it, and it's it's tough. Let's figure it out. I'm not saying he's... Evil. The reason why this happens is not because people get together in a, a global racist conspiracy and they go, let's charge black people more because we hate black people. That, y'all, it's like that, y'all. I don't really give a fuck about it at all. Because the same people that try to blackball me forgot about two things, my black balls. 
26 tonight. Inmates receiving reduced jail time if they get a vasectomy. The eyebrow-raising program is so popular, dozens have taken part in it already. And tonight, a mid-state district attorney is trying to put the brakes on the plan. News Channel 5's Chris Conti is in White County, where operations are already being performed. While the program may sound strange, 70 inmates so far have taken advantage of it, either having a vasectomy or a birth control implant. The DA out here, though, calls this ethically questionable. Are you all ready to proceed? As a general sessions judge in White County, Sam Benningfield sees all kinds of cases. I also hear divorce cases. I'm the juvenile judge. I'm the probate judge. But he gets so many repeat drug offenders who can't afford child support or don't have a job that he's decided something has to change. Do you hope that this order breaks a cycle? Is that kind of what you're hoping for? Oh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. On May 15th, Judge Benningfield issued this standing order. Any inmate who completes a neonatal health class then has an option. Female inmates can get a free Nexplanon birth control implant in their arm. Male inmates can get a free vasectomy. They will then be given 30 days credit toward their jail time. What I'm hoping to do is help them start thinking about taking responsibility for themselves. So far, 32 women in the jail have gotten the birth control implant, which lasts for four years. 38 men are waiting to get vasectomies. And so I hope to encourage them to at some point finally take, you know, personal responsibility and, uh, and to give them a chance if when they do get out not to be burdened again with, you know, additional children. Should inmates get reduced jail time for getting a vasectomy? No. District Attorney Bryant Dunaway has major concerns. I just think that it's something that uh, uh, those decisions are personal in nature. And, uh, and I, I think that's just something that the, the, the court system should not encourage nor mandate. The program is completely voluntary, but Dunaway worries it may not be legal. I instructed my staff not to uh, be involved in this type of uh, arrangement in any way. Hopefully, while they're staying here, uh, we help them to rehabilitate themselves in, in hopes that they never come back. A judge who wants to make an impact, not just in the courtroom. Chris Conti. News Channel 5. We did reach out to the ACLU about this story. In a statement, they said, in part, judges play an important role in our community. Overseeing individuals' childbearing capacity should not be part of that role. So what are your thoughts on the punishment reduction option? Head to our Facebook page right now and join the conversation. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 22nd, 2017. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Uh, this is for listeners, non-white people, victims of white supremacy to dial in, share their views thoughts, counter-racist suggestions on things that have happened over the past seven days. Certainly, if you want to comment on the audio clips that we began with, uh, that's allowed or hopefully encouraged. Um, we also, uh, if you have other incidents that took place that you would like to comment on, that would be great. Uh, if you have suggestions, if you thought about some things that you just want to share, uh, always welcome the number 641-715-3632. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. That number again six four one seven one five three six 
5640. The code 564943pound. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. A couple quick things uh, before we get started. One, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Uh, you can visit my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Um, you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop me an email. We can get you a physical mailing address if you would like to support uh, i moved make sure you drop an email to make sure you have current mailing address uh, for gus before uh, you mail anything out again massive appreciation gratitude thanks to all the folks uh, for nearly a decade that we've been on who have supported uh, the context of white supremacy i hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy thanks as well to the folks uh, who've gotten items from uh, my wish list at amazon.com uh, over the years enjoying using my brand new headphones that i got from my wish list uh just this week much obliged uh, at amazon.com under gusty renegade a uh, couple things that i wanted to make sure i commented on before we get started i think last week i told listeners about my experience, I heard Dr. Vanessa Grubbs. She came to Seattle, Washington uh, last Thursday to discuss her new book uh, that was reviewed in the New York Times. She's been doing interviews on NPR and lots of different places. Her new book, Hundreds of Interlaced Fingers. Uh, it's about her black husband. He had kidney failure. She donated a uh, she donated a kidney to save him uh, after she saw the shabby treatment that he got as a black male in the white supremacist healthcare system. And so she wrote her book and she gives a lot of great information about racism and organ transplants. Anyway, I talked about how she came here and she uh, was not forthcoming with racism. They didn't talk about racism at all until I asked questions. Uh, for one, Dr. Grubb should be on the cows uh, at the end of the month. Uh, so people who are looking for summer reading material and relatively light. This book, it's it's kind of a romance. It's about uh, her now husband. Uh, they were dating at the time and how all that evolved and how she got to the point of donating a kidney and a lot of information. This is a black female uh, and a lot of information about racism in healthcare and specifically with organ transplants. It's not very long. Uh, it's written in a very easy to read format. She is a medical doctor and a professor, but it's, this is not like an academic text at all. This is very much just for lay people, easy summer read. Uh, she won't be on until the end of the month. So you'll have like, a, you'll have the rest of the month basically to read. You'll have more than a week to read. And I think you could easily complete the book if you uh, want to prepare for her visit, ask some questions. Uh, and it will be especially interesting because I should have an article published on, on my thoughts on her visit uh, to Seattle and racism and organ harvesting should be published at Atlanta Black Star tomorrow. Um, don't know if that will impact the interview or what have you, but I'm looking forward uh, both to the article and uh, her visit to the cows. Next, the segment about Seattle Mayor Ed Murray, suspected racist, suspected child rapist. The information came out this week in the Seattle Times that they got sealed records that Portland social workers found that the now mayor had at the time, this was in the 80s, 
they found that he likely had molested a foster child in Oregon in the 1980s. As you heard in the segment, that some of the social workers thought that he had done this. Some of them did not think he had done this, but this this was in the 80s and these records had been sealed. One of our listeners, Aisha Clay, was absolutely gorgeous. We have lots of lovely black female listeners, absolutely gorgeous. But she posted, she said, I think these victims are non-white. And I said, why do you say that? I've been paying attention loosely to this case. I just had been too lazy to see what the victims looked like uh, because they they do have photographs of, of one in particular. He's been very outspoken. So I asked, I said, why do you, why do you think that the victims are non-white? So she posts uh, one of the photos or she posts a couple, but specifically she posts the photo of what one of the victims looked like in high school. And all of this is on my Facebook page, this whole uh, thread. Uh, but you can look and see uh, what they look like, uh, what Mr. Simpson uh, looks like. He's one of the victims. And boy, black male. As soon as you see the photograph, this looks like a black male. And she pointed out specifically that the names for some of the other victims, Lloyd Anderson and LaVon Jones, she said, these sound like stereotypically black males. It could be that Seattle Mayor Ed Murray, it could be that he had a fetish for raping black boys in the 1980s and was able to do this, was never criminally charged, is now mayor of Seattle. He has not been forced out of office. He said he is not resigning and it's just chilling in the Emerald City, as it is called. I thought it was extremely important. We've talked about Jerry Sandusky before. We've talked about the sexual vulnerability of black children before. That was a big part of Delectable Negro. In fact, you can rewind Valerie Jackson when we talked about the Jerry Savile uh, case from I think that was 2012. Uh, that was, I think, the year after Jerry Sandusky. But we had Valerie Jackson on. She's a white woman in the UK. She wrote a whole book about racism and child molestation. We've talked about that extensively uh, on this program, Long History. Uh, just thought that was really, really important. Uh, again, gratitude to Aisha Clay for pointing that out. My apologies for being lazy. Something happening right here. That's why I say consistently, really got to make sure you're checking the news locally nationally globally because things will be happening right literally on your block and you know you could miss it if you're not paying attention but i thought that was an extremely important illustration uh this is you know what can happen playing around with sex some of these were foster children i think dr welsing i'm real sure she would take this moment to include when we play around with sex the joke is on the offspring final comment i will get in the young turks they're about the same as bill maher Talked about them extensively this week. I played two different segments uh, from the Young Turks, the one where they were talking about cities exploiting black people. And then the other one was uh, Officer Oliver, suspected race soldier who killed this young uh, black teen in Texas earlier this year that, you know, he's going to face some criminal charges, uh, probably not be convicted, but we'll see. Um, I play their segments because they talk about racism ostensibly frequently but the way that they talk about it in my view is them practicing white supremacy dr Cambon, he says often concepts that's one of the major ways that white people practice deception giving us false concepts so that we cannot accurately understand things that are happening in our environment the young turks consistently give out 
false concepts in terms of how we should think about racism. They'll consistently every week come with these stories. Oh, yeah. They, you know, folks at this university have found that black people are being systemically exploited. Uh, They're targeting black people. But, oh, yeah, it's not like, you know, people. He doesn't even say which people, but it's not like people are sitting around like, <laughs> we're going to get black people. And they just go right to the next story of black people being targeted again. And they lie about targeting black people with the way that they shot uh, this young teen in Texas and then lied about the specifics of the incident. But oh, no, no, no. Nobody is sitting around plotting, scheming, planning to attack black people in all areas of people activity. That sort of Thinking is common where people will talk about these different incidents. But I think, Dr. Welsing, again, when you begin to connect the dots, in my view, it becomes impossible. The logic, the logic dictates this is coordinated. This is not happenstance. This has been happening for far too long. And this is happening all over the known universe. Yes, individuals who classify themselves as white. They sit around and burn midnight oil, plotting, scheming, planning on how they are going to abuse black people next. For this program specifically, if we could not use metaphors, that would be greatly appreciated. One of the ways that whites practice deception, using similes, metaphors, making comparisons between two different entities claiming that they are equivalent when they absolutely are not. They do this often, all the time, constantly, especially when they talk about racism, uh, non-white people, victims of racism. We uh, have been exposed to racists behavior. So we mimic a lot of the things that they do. And often we're still learning and trying to articulate our thoughts on racism. Sometimes We will just use a metaphor and hope that that accurately conveys what it is we want to say. Often it does not. It just produces more confusion. Uh, If we could please have people, if we could make an effort to be explicit, direct about what it is you want to say, that would be grand. I will prompt about that as we proceed. If you could take about five minutes to share whatever it is you want to say, that would be great. Make sure everybody gets an opportunity to speak. If you could speak one time and then allow everybody else to get their one time sharing. And then if you have additional comments or questions, we'll make time for that as well. That's it. Uh, If you could watch the background noise, uh, if you're in a noisy environment, use your mute button. If you know other people are talking or if you've got the television on or whatever it is, uh, just make sure use your mute button. Then you can unmute yourself when you're ready to speak and then mute again just to make sure we preserve the audio quality of the broadcast. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564943 pound press star six if you would like to participate first few people who dialed in with a hand up line should be open proceed hello can i be yours yes ma'am yes um female caller from georgia i wasn't clear on that last clip were they saying that um, men were, was this a particular crime that was receiving a 30-day credit for time served if they uh, agreed to having a vasectomy? Or was it 
and such crime. Uh, from the segment that I saw, and I can go back and look, you know, at some different news reports to see if they have additional information, but I don't think it was for a specific crime. I do know that in that report that I played, they were taught the judge specifically mentioned drug offenses, that he saw a lot of repeat offenders for drug related crimes. But I didn't hear anything that this offer of a 30 day reduction was just for people who had a drug sentence or any other specific sentence. It seemed like it was just uh, an open offer, an open offer. Wow, that was interesting. It had nothing to do with a drug offense, but we'll offer you a vasectomy for free. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to clear that up. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Appreciate that. Uh, uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you have commentary, mine should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, have uh, I have uh, two examples. Uh, all of the uh, participants in both uh, instances are are uh, non-white, black. Uh, one is a non-constructive means of communication, something that we find ourselves involved in too often. And then the last one would be uh, a excellent example of being constructive uh, in conversation uh, about uh, we're actually articulating a uh, situation. Uh, first, uh, coaching staff, uh, for the most part, after uh, a uh, workout, uh, all black males, uh, which automatically, as Mr. Fuller says, uh, uh, carries uh, a poisonous uh, environment in a lot of cases. Uh, after the workout, there's really is no agenda. You were sitting around the cars in the parking lot. Thankfully, the players were all gone. Uh, conversation starts off subtly. Uh, uh, just discussing different issues, some football, some not necessarily. Uh, it gets directed down uh, to just chit-chat, and then uh, a discussion comes up about something pertaining to raising money, and it turns in from uh, just uh, – small talk to uh, disagreement will debate then disagreement to argument between two people. Uh, 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 And as I observed the speed of it, I attempted to uh, stop the process by involving one of the two participants to distract him away by stating honestly that I had something else that I needed to talk to him about. But by that time he already went to, to the, to the level to where as it became a situation where he actually threatened 
the other non-white black males. Uh, Needless to say, he's not going to be coaching with us this year. Uh, he was invited on the staff in the offseason. Now he's been uninvited off the staff uh, because of the uh, – he also has a history uh, with it. Uh, so now to the more constructive example, the more constructive example, actually I was driving and listening to uh, urban – Urban Radio, I believe it's called, uh, on you know, on satellite radio, uh, the Armstrong Williams uh, segment. Uh, it, uh, I know, uh, <laughs> kind of like makes you nauseous, uh, I would guess. But uh, Armstrong Williams actually wasn't uh, on. Uh, but uh, it was an uh, interview on the program with – a non-white black male who reportedly uh, got assistance from the NRA. And I have an idea on why he was invited on is because of Mr. Castile and, uh, you know, the known fact that the NRA never did come to his aid at all, come to his, come to his aid after death, of course, uh, or speak at all in defense of what took place to Mr. Castile. So uh, to try to overturn that, that uh, racist uh, incorrect behavior, uh, I guess someone affiliated with, with the program brought up this non-white black male, uh, come to find out he is a uh, police weapons instructor that got in, got in, trouble with the police and he basically became like a uh, in an interview became like a salesperson for the NRA uh, I'm internally grateful blah 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 uh, uh, about uh, the NRA helping me and whatever so but what I wanted to mention about what was constructive about it was one of the callers Oh man, awesome, awesome non-white black female. I would assume that she was a young lady, but it doesn't matter if she, even she was a, a elderly uh, a lady, a black lady. But nevertheless, she was a black lady, and the way she articulated uh, what was attempted to take place to kind of divert away from. Uh, uh, some sort of constructive uh, analysis or, or accurate analysis of racist white supremacy. She mentioned about to the gentleman that uh, had uh, had the fortunate of NRA supporting him. She said, uh, well, you know, I, I would like to congratulate Mr. X. I can't remember his name. Mr. X on how he was uh, given that kind of support from the NRA, but he is just an exception to what normally takes place with the NRA. And then she went about the means of uh, expressing uh, the, uh, the incorrectness uh, of not necessarily the organization, but the white people who control 
the organization and I, I, I couldn't nowhere possibly do it as well as she was articulating it in a very codified counter racist way. And it was worth, it was worth listening to the Armstrong Williams show. I just put it that way uh, in the process. And it, and it was so impactful that I, that I just had to just kind of like the best way I could share it with uh, the listeners on this program also. Uh, because she was so well uh, kind of racist codified in what she was saying. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Right on. Black self-respect. I know that's where I know sometimes it can be very uh, difficult. I think someone emailed me this week about Mr. Williams and wanting to question him or having a different opinion. And I know sometimes it can be difficult to have black self-respect and still, you know, make your point say, just articulate truth and follow logic. Sometimes that can be challenging, but always appreciate it when folks are able to do that. Sounds like you heard a great illustration of some, uh, this black female who was able to do that very well. Uh, other oh, folks, she was awesome. Right on. Uh, other folks, if you all have uh, commentary, if we've not heard from you at all, uh, if you have a hand up line should be open. Uh, again, the number six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero, the code five, six, four, nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate We have folks uh, spectating again because I do see uh, several hands uh, would appear folks who have not spoken. I don't know if everybody's in a spot where they cannot speak. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, thank you very much, sir. Greetings to that's the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, there was a, a segment, I think that was the Young Turks. Uh, they were talking about, I guess, um, something about, you know, uh, I guess something not being about color or whatever, you know, the lady kept saying that, oh, well, you know, there's a racial component to it, but she was always flipping it to something else. Like it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's about not, not because you're black per se, but, uh, you know, it's because you're powerless and that's the, the irony of it that, uh, you know, black people can't practice racism, you know, that being, we're being dominated. Um, and, you know, we are in a powerless position, but she's speaking as if it's two different things, like it's not synonymous or whatnot. Uh, and what, what was very interesting is when the guy, uh, he, and he ended the segment talking about, Oh, well, you know, uh, if, if black people started to do something, they'll be fighting for other poor people. Now, you know, they just said uh, that we were powerless. So if there's people more powerful than us, you know, how would us, how would us as black people doing what you want us to do, be fighting for other poor people? I guess he, I don't know if he was talking about white people or whatever, like that, that came off uh, uh, very confusing to me. Uh, maybe that was their intention or whatever, or whoever wrote that for them, or I don't know. But uh, there was also a guy 
I think he was I think he was running for the uh mayor of Saint Pete, Saint Petersburg and he was uh caught on camera, he was saying something about he was asked he was answering a question about reparations. Uh and he said, Well, yeah, your reparations came in the form of Barack Obama and uh, you know, there's a plane leaving if you don't like it. You can uh, go back to Africa, and he kept saying it. So it looked like people was uh, shocked or surprised by that. And the video report that I seen, apparently, it's it's him and some other people. I guess running for mayor. I think I could be incorrect, but it looked like the person, the other person, was a white guy. And he was like his uh, campaign slogan was unity under reparations i think so that's what brought about the reparations topic so you know i'm just seeing this person and you know they uh they put the microphone in front of them and you know they they uh asked him to comment about what the guy said you know clearly it was racism and he said oh you know well that guy jeremy i think i think that's what the guy name was Jeremy is a non-issue. Like he didn't call him a racist, you know. Like it seemed like he was trying to um, get away from talking about that. And you know, you have people, black people, standing behind him, holding up their fists and stuff. So um, possibly more confusion going on. And I wanted to bring up one one last thing. Has because uh, have you ever heard of that? It's a uh, it's something I've seen on YouTube. I guess it's something called MGTOW, like MGTOW or something like that. Um, I don't know if anyone has ever talked about that, but I've heard there's been some racism going on in that. I, I think it's like the uh, white male, white man's version of feminism. Have, has anyone ever talked about that on here? I don't believe so. I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, because uh, I heard it was some racism going on in the, uh, I guess, some kind of a group or whatever. I have to research it more. But um, other than that, that's all I have for now. And uh, thanks for allowing me to share. Indeed. I saw the mayor down in Florida. I'm posting the uh, segment now uh, who got on a roll and, you know, told him if you don't like it, you can uh, hop a plane and be out of here uh, when white people are keeping and got hit. Obama is your reparations. <laughs> I saw that uh, from this week. That was a rather popular segment from uh, down in Florida. Always love it when white people keep it real. And it, what will probably happen will be other white people will generally be the ones to step forward and be like, oh, my God, what a disgrace. There's no way we can vote for him. You're not supposed to tell the niggers that out in public like that. <laughs> and then they'll they'll make sure he doesn't win. But, yeah. Uh other folks that we've not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, lines should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, beautiful people. Um, this is Ami. Hopefully, there's not too much sounds in the background, but I'm on the way to the plantation, so, and my notes are kind of spotty because I am driving, but um, I'm very happy 
that you made a sound bite of the, uh, it's not like there's a bunch of people who get together and figure out ways to attack black people. I'm so happy that that person said it and that she got it. And now it's a sound bite. It made me laugh the second time you used it. <laughs> but um, I appreciate the uh, Mumia clip. I think that he's fun, a concept that a lot of people know is like as above, so below um, in a very palatable kind of way, something that is not so ethereal and metaphysical and seems so kind of like occult-like, um, being able to study or take, you know, look at how, um, what heat is and as molecules move faster, they create heat and heat's what create change and putting the pressure and the heat and the yeast and all that, being able to observe something on a really microscopic level and being able to transpose it to the macroscopic level. So I think he did a fantastic job of doing that um, and teaching that in a really wonderful way. Um, the other thing for the Clayton, for the Clayton clip, um, I observed what I'm thinking is a white male interviewer. I think he might be white. I'm not sure. Um, but if he is, I thought he was really sadistic because I think his entire point of the interview was to ascertain how these people were viewing their, um, now I'm lacking the proper term, um, Displacement. There we go. Their displacement. He asked the question so many times. So do you think elbowing out was the right way to say it? Or do you think this and this? Come to find out. He was like, well, isn't it true that you said that it was suffocation? And I was like, then why would you ask so many times if this woman just said in, in her work that they were suffocated out? Why are you going to ask her so many times if, being, if your metaphor of saying that they were elbowed out was sufficient? Um, in which case, that was the most one of the most pointless interviews. Ever. I don't think they ever got to talk really about much other than like his, for me, in my observation, the way that I'm interpreting it is that his main objective was to feel, to control the narrative on how the individuals or how people are really going to view this elbowing out or this suffocation um, and not really highlighting any facts or really getting to the heart of the matter. Um, and I felt that's just another one of their highly evolved racist tactics. Um, it, it, for me, it feels, it's so subtle that by the time I realized, I'm like, man, it took me a long time. If I wasn't paying attention, I wouldn't have caught it. Um, when I'm, I don't want to, no, there's no emotionality, I guess, about it, but um, it's disgusting and abhorrent that people are being offered shorter sentences to get a vasectomy or get one of those IUDs or whatever implanted into them. Um, and I'm surprised that they chose an IUD for the female instead of doing, like, burning her tubes or something like that. Like, if, the, you know, a male vasectomy, I think, like, the equivalent would be, you know, tying her tubes or burning the tubes. But anyway, um, I was thinking, oh, okay, like, I guess you get, like, years off to only get 30 days. I could have cried for that. that means, like, literally 30 days. That's, that's what you're looking at. If you're not going to have children in the future um, for 30 days. Like, that, and that is what... I think I'm someone who kind of struggled a little bit with the language that Mr. Foley used when I first got put on to counter-racist terminology um, or became introduced to counter-racist terminology. I was like, man, he's like kind of harsh, calling this pitiful and all that kind of stuff. But that's pitiful. 30 days vasectomy. That's, that's pitiful. Um, and then the last thing that I wanted to comment on is the more I'm like studying health stuff, 
um, particularly mental health stuff, but really even like physical aging and stuff like that and how stress affects that. That clip about black people having a 40% higher chance of developing Alzheimer's and dementia. My parents are not old, um, but they're getting older. And I have like a, just a fear and an anxiety of what it's going to look for, like because they're very healthy now. But I'm just always so scared. I'm very attached to my parents, so very scared about that. And so whenever I hear stuff like that, I have like a anxious reaction to it. But one thing I think that's important that one of somebody said in the in that clip is that um, that it's something more like perception, so that it's not inherent, but it's how we perceive these events. And I kind of learned that in one of the other classes too. That stress is a lot of times linked to experience of the stress, but really the perception that we're making about the stressor. So if I evaluate the stressor, stressor as a challenge or debilitating will determine how my body responds on a physiological level to that stress, which for me just gives me a little bit of hope because no, we cannot not stress or there's no such thing as not having stress, but maybe something that can help us as non-white victims of white supremacy is um, how we're changing how we perceive that stress. And, and in math level, individually, naturally, yes. But being able to take this on as something like that we can do something about and not just die from it in some slow, painful death. Um, but thank you all for listening. That's what I have. Indeed. Uh, just really quickly, the in Tennessee, uh, White County specifically, that's interesting. <laughs> White County, Tennessee, where uh, the judge, and this is Sam Benningfield, it does not seem that this applies to any specific offense. It just seems uh, the only thing that offers any any type of specific uh, specificity is repeat offenders. Uh, but it's anyone who can receive 30 days. And I, too, thought that was a pitiful offer, like not a year or year. I mean, this is life-changing generations not being able to ever have offspring again uh 30 days like wow uh but yeah it seemed you can get this 30-day credit uh you can just volunteer for it anyone who's there so it doesn't matter what the offense is uh your commentary about the clayton clayton is very close to st louis that's why it started with that clip in reference to michael brown jr clayton is very very close to st louis right outside the the main city uh but your commentary about the white person conducting the interview and uh, well, do you think it's right to say they were elbow? I believe elbowing out. I believe that would be a metaphor. Uh, enough said. Um, and killing the black body. Dorothy Roberts, top ten. Gusty Renegade. She was a guest. She was a guest on the program three times, but she specifically was a guest on the program in 2009 to discuss killing the black body. Incredibly, incredibly important book, and that makes up a big chunk forced sterilizations of black people, particularly black inmates. Uh, we also talked about that with uh, Elaine Riddick's son. Uh, she was a black female. She was forcibly sterilized in North Carolina. She had a son uh, first. In fact, they sterilized her right when her child was being born. Tony Riddick, he was on the program uh, 2012. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have commentary, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi, good evening. Thank you so much for taking my call. I hope all of you are having a good evening. Um, again, great clip. I agree with um, what Emmy said about the Clayton situation. 
and um, it just reminded me to be um, more mindful of the of land. If you know in your family you have land, make sure you check that out. I know our family um, lives in St. Helena Island, and a lot of that land is passed through. I guess it's passed through through heirs. So I'm an heir somehow. So I need to you know, talk to my father and make sure, you know, that that doesn't leave us because there are a lot of white people moving down there in that area because of the water, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So be mindful of that. And if you have an opportunity to buy a house, I know it can be a daunting because of the maintenance. I don't care if you only get, like, two inches or something. You know, we need more land as black people. So if we have the opportunity to get that, we should. Um, and again, back to Clayton, I think they do these things for sports. He's like, oh, this is interesting. It's informative. You know, they never seem outraged. Like, oh, no, what an injustice. What can we do? So we know they don't care. Um, about the St. Petersburg, I think the person running against the guy that said go back to Africa is Jesse Devil, and I think he was on the show. And I saw that because I looked at I looked that up and I saw that the other day. I was like, oh, I think that guy was on the program. So wow, I guess he's really sticking with this message. And I don't know what he's gonna do about that, but but that was interesting. And um, again, the health issues those are also very important. My uncle, he's he was in New Jersey. He's supposed to be the number one kidney recipient, and I think they called him so. We'll see how that goes. I hope he gets that. And, um, oh, and I know we don't promote watching TV and everything, but there's some show by ACO they're trying to promote called Confederate. It's ridiculous. People justifiably are upset. And I think you should let people know just so they know this is what they're trying to do on TV to hopefully to stop or limit black people from watching TV. Like, these are the programs that they're putting out. They don't want us. I mean, I don't know how clear how clear it can be. A show called Confederate to about well, what if what if the South won? Which of course to me is utter ridiculousness. But you know, I digress. Thank you. What's interesting is that they already had a movie uh, that was that same theme. What if the South won the Confederate War? Uh, the Civil War, excuse me, what if the uh, Confederacy won the Civil War? What would, you know, North America look like? What would what would things be like? Uh, they already have a movie about that, so. Well, I missed that one, so thank God. Mm. <laughs> uh, I think Spike Lee was even uh, affiliated with that project. I have to go back to double check. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all have commentary? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, peace to Gus, the host. Peace to the family listening. Peace to everybody listening. Uh, this is V from Central New York. It has been some time since I've been with you, but there's been uh, a lot going on uh, in uh, uh, my vicinity. Just <sighs> white supremacy. <laughs> it's been uh, interesting the last few months, but everything is starting to calm down. So uh, glad to be with you all tonight. Um, the irony of a couple of clips that you played tonight, uh, 
really is striking. I've been reading articles on um, uh, black communities destroyed either through urban, quote, urban renewal or uh, interstate highway projects and programs or even WA work programs from the 1930s. And I just read an article from Think Progress on Clayton. I believe it was Clayton, but it's a, it's a community right outside of Ferguson where most of the black residents actually moved to Ferguson. So um, that was quite interesting um, how that synchronized itself. As for the clip on the use of eugenics, uh, sterilization of people in order to shorten their um, stay in prison or jail, um, I am not at all surprised that black men are being encouraged to have vasectomies and black women are just being sterilized for four years. It seems that the white supremacist is utilizing a tactic, I will only say this um, as a comparison um, from the Bible, of killing off all black men or masculine energy and wanting to promote feminine energy, which of course is the black female. I see more black women in my area with white men than I do black men with white females, although the numbers are um, equalizing, I guess. I'm starting to see a lot more black men decide to be with black women. Um, the Young Turks, I've been listening to clips by them for almost 10 years, and I have noticed, I apologize for the noise, I have uh, uh, a white supremacist as a neighbor, and they could sometimes be noisy. So if you hear anything, I apologize. Anyway, the Young Turks, I've been listening to clips from them for about 10 years, and their racism has definitely become more codified for them, um, whereas uh, Uyghur used to speak about not being for affirmative action, even originally. From the 80s and the 70s, he was against affirmative action. He started talking about being against it because it seemed to hold back black people and not promote um, uh, efficient thinking and self-determination de self and self-confidence that it seemed black people were developing an inferior complex because they didn't feel like they could um, achieve higher goals without the help of white people. He used to talk about this. And then when he became the godfather of a little black child, then some of his vocabulary evolved and changed. And he would regularly bring up the fact that he would have to now um, talk to that black godchild about racism. And so therefore he had to now be uh, conscious of that type of stuff. And then finally, on a much better note, I passed a few books on to a young man, young uh, non-white black male who I work with, 25 years old, very, very smart, 
so not he doesn't appreciate racism as much as he could so i passed on a few books on child psychology child uh, culture which he was interested in he does have a young uh, black child though it is with a white female and when he brought those books home to his uh, white companion she was a little bit taken back and asked why he needed to have such books for their child and he said well uh, my child is part black and therefore should understand his black culture his black self his black uh, role in society and she actually suggested that that was not necessary but he persisted and said, well, it couldn't hurt. So um, I found that interesting, didn't speak on it anymore to him, but um, we're actually going to be meeting to discuss these books uh, next month. So uh, hopefully that is able to be built out into something more uh, substantive. Thank you very much for the show, Gus. Continue doing your work. Peace to everybody. Grand, grand. Um... I did want that is spectacular, encouraging other black people and especially younger black people uh, to read constructive material. Spectacular. Uh, we could all should all be doing uh, much more of that as much as we possibly can. So, you know, huge uh, uh, commendation to you, black self-respect. And uh, yeah, let us know how that goes. Uh, I think it was mentioned before. I think Red in Ohio, she's been doing her counter racist research on white's drug epidemic uh the uh, opioid crisis as they call it and we were talking about narcan i think two weeks before and people saying hey we should invest in this because they're saying they're uh you might this might be required officers to have this because so many whites are, are overdosing uh narcan is produced by amphistar pharmaceuticals that would be who you'd be investing in if you want to invest in narcan it's up about a dollar since we talked about it previously on the program it's at about 18 and a half, you could probably, if you wanted to do some counter-racist investing, if you think this opioid thing is going to continue, whites and their drug addiction, right? Historic, legendary, we think that's going to continue, and this Narcan is going to be used, then you could perhaps invest, get a few shares, it's not super expensive, and see what happens. It might even be one that you could buy and hold for six months and see what it looks like. Uh, but it has risen. It's a pretty new company, something we talked about recently. Uh, and we might even have some folks who are willing to research. At least Red has been, this is her area of study, it seems. So you can add that to your port portfolio to track Narcan and Amphistar Pharmaceuticals specifically. They have uh, a monopoly. They are the exclusive manufacturer of Narcan. Other folks that we've not heard from at all. Quick question. Are they black owned? I can't imagine that being the case, but I will check. I think my default answer would be no until proven otherwise. Okay. Thank you. Their headquarters is in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Ken Steele frequently calls in from down there. Maybe uh, these are his pals uh, that uh, have founded Amphistar Pharmaceuticals.
Uh, okay, I'm looking at their executive management uh, page, and I don't see photographs of any black people. Uh, I see some non-white, non-black individuals, uh, individuals who look like they would be white. I don't see anybody who has enough melanin that they would be classified as black. I'll post their executive page. You all can come to your own uh, conclusions. Other folks we have not heard from at all? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Great. Uh, greetings, everyone. Um, to all the listeners, of course, greetings to you, Mr. Uh, Gus, and thanks again for providing a, a wonderful show, um, providing us with constructive um, commentary and allowing us to speak on racism, white supremacy. And I'll be real quick. Um, first, um, great segments of, of clips of examples of racism and white supremacy uh, going on in, in, here in recent days. Uh, the reduced sit, sentence, uh, the bisectomy for reduced sentence is uh, quite amazing to me. Um, just for the simple fact, uh, while not as, especially as at point at emphasizing that African-Americans, um, mainly because they're just emphasizing vasectomies. I mean, not for uh, being you know, <laughs> a, a model prisoner, not for going out, being an example to the kids and speaking um, to, the, to the youth or anything positive. You know, they're not emphasizing that. They're emphasizing vasectomies for a reduced sentence. It's amazing to me and just uh, Gus and, and, and listeners just gives me an immediate alert, um, peace to the ancestor, um, Mrs. Uh, our doctor, Francis Crest Wilson, and what she emphasized that she they emphasizes in our genitals uh, for uh, to um, eliminate us and um, uh, at, you know black annihilation there and a medical apartheid that book Gus that you and you brought the author on it, it just just gives me an immediate alert of both uh, those that are that author and that an, and the ancestor Dr. Chris Wilson immediately. Um, and lastly, I will just say, um, in the news, Mr. R. Kelly has been in the news here uh, this week, uh, heavily emphasizing his, um, what we call his behavior, if you will, um, when it comes to um, his, his the, the women he sees and the multiple women he has in, in several houses and how he, basically how he's conducting himself. And I guess they label it as a cult in these women or some kind of brainwashed or whatnot, but uh, I will um, I will say this: it just uh, I started doing some homework, and it's amazing to me that he's labeled as a cult leader. But you take someone 91 years old, Mr. Hugh Hefner, who's been doing the same thing <laughs> for years, and uh, and probably at 91 years old still doing it. I mean, if you got if you guys take a look at Wikipedia. Wikipedia Hugh Hefner basically bragging about <laughs> what this guy has been doing for years in, in regards to in terms of relationships with several women, multiple women at the same time. You know, bragging about he's, how many Playboy uh, playmates he's he counted her playmates he's been with at the same time. I mean, it's just break, basically bragging about that. And these women are not 
uh, uh, brainwashed and he's not running the cult. They just uh, <laughs> giving him accolades as a womanizer, if you will. And it's just amazing to me how just blatant racism um, um, just in the, in the forefront like that. And, and, and like, we don't, you know, just being with on this show and, 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 and Gus, and I'm still learning and you guys are keeping me codified and, and I'm just on alert just about everything. So I immediately went to this and I could just see just plain as day, just the contrast in between black and, and, and non, non-white people and white people being just as, just as racist as they want to be. So that's all I have to say. Uh, thank you, Gus, again for a wonderful show. And thanks for listening to my commentary. Thank you. Indeed. Appreciate you Indeed. calling Appreciate in, you. sir. Certainly don't have any support for uh, R. Kelly. <laughs> Didn't none implied from your commentary. Just making sure that was explicit. Uh, was that Mr. Steele? Sir, I'm sorry. Did you ask me a question, Gus? Oh no, sir. I thought Mr. Steele was was going to comment. But did we have other folks we hadn't heard from at all? Got a hand up. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the uh, callers and listeners. Um, I've been listening to the cows for over a year, so I guess I'll uh, have to go with a moniker here. Uh, just call me Henry from Chicago. Um, I wanted to comment in regards to um, Mumia and in regards to uh, – his uh, talk about the youth and how it is important. And I know this has been stressed on the show in regards to teaching our children uh, racism, white supremacy, because, uh, you know, it's, it'll probably be harder for them to digest the older they get uh, when you try to teach them at a, you know older age or when they become adults, because that's why we got so many confused people, most of the confused people out here, because most of them didn't get the, the training uh, about dealing with racism, white supremacy. So, uh, Mumia has, uh, you know, pointed that out in his, uh, in his speech. And, uh, I, I remember going to a lecture about the politics of education in regards to, uh, non-white black children and talking about how we need to, you know, the children that go to college, uh, to use those, uh, skills that they get from college to be productive in combating racism, white supremacy, and coming back and helping the community as well. Uh, I remember Alton Maddox in an interview talked about uh, if you want to be a lawyer for the people, there's three subjects that you might want to study while you're in college, Uh, African-American history, uh, political science, and military science. Uh, He says that those three subjects you probably might want to study as your undergrad before you go to law school so you can get that uh, that mindset of uh, trying to uh, you know trying to fight the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, while you become a lawyer, because um, there's not enough lawyers. Uh, he mentioned that are conscious uh, in fighting the system of racism, white supremacy, and uh, you know most likely in our lifetime, the system of white supremacy won't be replaced by justice. However, that's where we have to you know, tag the next generation to do this, to, to pick up this fight 
and, you know, maybe their generation might not do it, but then we have to instill in them to pass it on to the next generation because, um, you know, like I said, we may not see it, but hopefully our children will see it or our children's children will, will see uh, this system uh, be replaced with justice. Uh, that's all I have for now. I'll meet my line. Uh, the number again, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, ASAP, <laughs> definitely uh, try to make sure we share the information with young people and get uh, as many young folks focused on solving this problem as well. But everybody, I would hope, with that mindset of uh, urgency, getting this problem resolved ASAP. I think we can, uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all. Uh, if you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. If you had commentary. Did we get everyone? Seems like, uh, there are people who have hands up that we've not heard from. It's what me off a little bit. Did we get everybody? Or if we have folks who are in a spot where they can't talk, then we can circle back around for them later. But we catch everybody with a hand up? Okay, I'll assume we'll catch them uh, later in the broadcast. Uh, this is last hour, so you don't have tons and tons of time. But if you do have a hand up, line should be Yes, sir, Thomas. Mm-hmm. Good evening, Gus. Sorry, just let me put my try to put my earpiece in here. Good evening to all the callers. Um, Thomas in New York. Um, I didn't get a chance to listen to the clips. So, um, I'm just gonna comment on some things that I've I've observed um, over the last few days. And um, um, first I just wanted to say um. He's a basketball player named uh, Mike Conley. I don't know if you played a clip about him, Gus. Um, this um, NBA player, he's not the best player in the world, but um, he was able to um, manage to put himself in a very good position and to sign a five-year, $153 million contract last year, which made him the highest-paid player in the league until this year. Um, but he has a white wife, Cowbell. And he posted pictures of themselves with their son. And um, just to give you a um, reference, his son has um, straight blonde hair and um, huge light brown eyes. And on uh, white social media, he's claiming that his um, wife cheated on him. You know, they're, they're saying there's no way he's this kid's father. These are white people saying this. Um, the celebrity gossip shows are saying, making jokes, you know, this isn't his kid. I just think that's um, extremely tacky. Um, and, uh, you know, just another reason as for why uh, we should not be interracially mixing with people, you know, to, to, just to, to put yourself in the direction to have these things happen. Um, now I saw a picture of the baby, and the baby does look white. But then I did further research, and I found some pictures of the baby where I guess he had his summer color. And um, he definitely looks like um, he wouldn't pass for a white baby with summer color. So I just um, wanted to 
to um, let everyone know that that this is this is what's going on and um, one of the effects of dating uh, or, or or being in these interracial relationships. And Sean Vaz always says, "Yeah, this man um um I don't know his um beginnings, but they're probably humbling. Uh, has made himself a multi-millionaire, hundreds of millions of dollars in contract money, and uh, when he passes, it's going to be left to white people um, and his son." Um, another tidbit, um, there's a Chicago-based rapper named Chance the Rapper. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but he does like the Kit Kat commercial. And um, I, I mean, I'm, I haven't heard a lot of his music, but from what I understand, he's a very clean-cut rapper. Um, he um, doesn't talk a lot of um, profanity, um, drug use, calling women out their names. Um, he seems to be very... Um, clean cut with his lyrics. Um, he's an independent rapper. Um, he doesn't have any contracts with the major labels. And therefore, because he doesn't have those contracts, he's been able to give millions of dollars over to um, Chicago, um, to the public school system, to other ventures inside the city. And I, I just think that this guy's a, a very good guy. Um, he did a show in Connecticut. And 90 people were intoxicated, or was hospitalized for severe intoxication. Now, um, this is in Connecticut. It's not a lot of black people in Connecticut. Not a lot of poor people in Connecticut either. Um, this is usually where the white, upper echelon whites, the white elite from New York, um, you know, they, they live a few places in Connecticut, one of them, and um, I mean, you don't have a lot of houses in Connecticut. You have estates and mansions, you know. So these were 90 white people, more than likely, intoxicated. 50 were underage. And this is how you could tell these were white kids because the cops said they, they, they were um, given underage drinking referrals. <laughs> Meaning that they probably called their parents and said, you know, this, they were out here drinking. Um, but um, so this was told uh, totally different. Um, then um, a couple years ago when um, there was some incidents at the mostly black attended Summer Jam concert in New, um, in New Jersey. I mean, police came. It didn't matter if you bought your tickets or not. They barricaded all the black people out. You know, it was terrible. Um, a lot of money had to be reimbursed to people. And um, these kids were just brought to the hospital and treated like victims. Um, and um, also... The paper did some demonizing of this Chance the Rapper, which I was very, you know, they treated him, in, the, in my respect, like he was just another rapper. And this guy isn't. Like I said, he's very clean cut. Um, and this didn't happen inside his concert. It happened outside at the tailgate. So um, just, you know, these people are always drinking. Um, one of the things, white people and drinking does not go together. So, um... Um, last little tidbit, and I sent Gus an email a few weeks ago, um, because, um, in the, uh, World Trade Center, they're doing an exhibit of the Sistine Chapel, um, that's the, the, um, the sailing paintings by, um, I believe Michelangelo, and, um, they have all the pictures blown up and superimposed, and it, it's pretty, um, Interesting, and um, it's a huge exhibit. Um, either way, um, these are the pictures um, that the Bible is made after. You 
these pictures predate the Bible. Um, don't don't let people fool you and say that the Bible's older than these pictures. So I just wanted to say, you know, I've seen the hand of God. That's the name of the picture, and it's a white hand coming out the sky. And um, this is what black people have to see every morning when they've been going to work this whole summer is um, the white hand of God coming down out the sky um, to touch a little white hand on the earth. And um, if this doesn't, isn't a psychological play on black people's minds, I don't know what is. You know, um, it, this is the hand of God. It's white. <laughs> it's the picture's older than the Bible. That's, that's it. That's the hand of God. Um, that's the way you guys have been praying to, you know, but I just find it very interesting. I'll mute my line. Thank you, Gus. Important point. Very popular uh, piece of white supremacy programming artwork. Um, I think it's, I think, I think if you just put in like Sistine Chapel, uh, you, once you see that portrait, I think you'll, it'll click immediately. Like, oh yeah, I've seen that extremely important and dr Wellsing talked about about that all the time once you have been conditioned in terms of thinking uh that the creator is white how that positions you uh in relationship being a non-white person having a lot of melanin uh in with regards to james uh not james hart mike conley uh that situation tragic cowbell he got that big contract last year he does not have like major NBA coin like James Harden I would not encourage folks you don't have to watch the games I would just pay attention to the way that uh, racists talk about James Harden it's been my experience particularly black people that start to get lots of money and the NBA got that big boost with uh, I think the television contract so they've been the contracts have just gotten huge so James uh, James Harden he just signed I think like a 200 million dollar contract extension a couple days ago he already had a $200 million contract with Adidas. So I would pay very close attention to how white people talk about James Harden. Might be a cowbell there as well. Just, you know, having a young black, I think he's still in his 20s to be that young and to be making that much money. Uh, I can see a lot of animosity being directed at Mr. Harden. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from, or do we have folks we've not heard from at all? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Rancho Cucamonga. Awesome. <laughs> uh, no, no. I, right now, I'm in. Uh, uh, this is Ken Steele, and I'm in uh, Hollywood. I'm on on Melrose. I'm walking to uh, a show that I I have tonight. So um, I, I I'm going to try to make this as succinct uh, as possible. So first, I, I want to say um, to the previous caller that was uh, talking about uh, Chance the Rapper, um, something that should be noted to uh by listeners is that uh chance the rapper his father is a uh, um a chicago politician by the name of uh, ken bennett and uh he is uh heavily affiliated with uh the obama family and the obama political machine um in chicago and i was in chicago while uh chance the rapper was um uh, growing in po- prominence uh, in the city and I thought it was very interesting um, to, to note how many um, very, very uh, beneficial um, uh, looks or, or uh, shout outs that he was getting from um, very high level people within the entertainment industry. For somebody who is not signed, 
um, you know, and who only at the time had um, one project under his uh, under uh, his uh, discography. The the fact that he was getting that kind of attention from um, the likes of Madonna um, was um, pretty astounding. And then I noted that on WBEZ, the local uh, NPR station, they had um, entire segments uh, dedicated to reviewing uh, Chance the Rapper's uh, work. And uh, he had a, um, a, a huge uh, segment on Vocalo. And this is something that, you know, I had never seen um, any rapper uh, do um, uh, to my knowledge. Um, that, uh, I think, a million-dollar gift to the Chicago public school system, I believe it was a package of money that was put together by some wealthy donors in the Democratic National Committee. And then he was responsible for presenting uh, this gift to uh, the Chicago public school. So, again, um, you know, just uh, evidence of, you know, how uh, deeply tied in with um, Chicago Democratic politics that Chance the Rapper is. And then, um, you know, it should be interesting to note that uh, in the year that Colin Kaepernick, uh, you know, led uh, his protest um, uh, in the NFL, uh, what was that? Uh, I, I believe it was, uh, I believe it was Chance the Rapper who received the BET Humanitarian of the Year Award, and that was presented by none other than Michelle Obama herself. Um, you know, this is just something that should be noted by listeners. I suspect that Chance the Rapper, um, you know, he's not signed to any um, record label except for the Democratic National Committee. He's clearly being positioned as a, uh, as a, a political player um, uh, going forward. And uh, me, I... I don't like what I've seen from him. I suspect that he's just going to be used to tell a lot of black people that uh, um, anti-sexual behavior is the preferred uh, way of conducting oneself. And I say this because his brother is the LGBT spokesperson for uh, urban outfitters, and he can be uh, seen prominently displayed on their website wearing their love is love a denim jacket. So, you know, I, I just, uh, I really do not like the uh, showcase um, uh, victims that the Democratic National Committee um, positions to Black people. And then they have us thinking that, you know, these people are our friends or that they are, um, you know, somehow beneficial towards us. So, um, you know, just uh, be very, very cautious about that. And uh, staying in the Chicago area, regarding the R. Kelly situation, it's very interesting how uh, these uh, white supremacists and these suspected white supremacists are able to program black people to say exactly what it is that they want. And I say this because um, if you do a search uh, for these two phrases that uh, and your, uh, you know, any of your associates who are victims of racism, you do a search for their name and the phrase sex cult. You will see that that in the 10 plus years that they've been on Facebook is one of the first times that they've ever used the term sex cult. And then you can even search for the phraseology young women. This was the one that really, turned, that really um, caught my attention because I don't 
think that that uh, victims of racism use the phraseology young women very often. And when I saw uh, when I saw this uh, phrase being used in relation to this case, I said, I think there's been some programming done here. And if I do the search, there is, you know, a victim's name, and then in quotes, young women, you'll see that in the 10 plus years that they've been on Facebook, one of the few times that they've ever used that word, and I'm gonna say this for nine out of 10 of the, sector, uh, or of the victims that I, I studied in this manner, uh, that was either one of the, uh, that was either the only time or one of uh, under five times that they've ever used that phrase on Facebook. So, uh, you know, there's just been a significant amount of programming done through uh, the various channels of communication that these uh, suspected uh, white supremacists control. And be very mindful of the media that you consume and the news that you hear about black people especially regarding any sort of sexual impropriety. As long as, as, long as Charlie Sheen is out here uh, uh, serving up HIV-infected uh, 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 sex sessions and he's not being questioned and he's not being thrown in jail because of his actions, then you know, I don't think that any uh, suspected racist has any room to talk about any black person's genitals in the media in any sort of disparaging way. So that's my stance. I'm going to go ahead and mute my line. Thank you so much. Appreciate that, Mr. Steele. Uh, one of our listeners, she wrote in, she said, the judge in White County, Tennessee, Benning, uh, Sam Bennington, reminds me of the Global Sunday Talk where there was a white woman who was a proponent of using birth control to eliminate poverty which the judge pointed to when he said the prisoners are are unable to pay their child support. This was a conversation on the BBC last week where uh, it was a white broadcaster. She was chiding a black female for not supporting birth control in Africa to help the, because uh, that's what black people in Africa need. That'll solve their problems, getting them more birth control so we don't have more dark babies. Continuing, she says, Mumia Abu-Jamal segment I also thought was brilliant bringing it down to molecules and energy fields, which also reminds me of the Global Sunday Talk, where a question was raised about using African spirituality to remove white people from the planet. In some circles, it is believed that there is a thing as magic and that the mind can be used to bring about the removal of white people from the planet. It's just a matter of perception and a belief in your ability to accomplish the task with your mind. It is interesting how white people, in particular, the young Turks who pretend to bring forth truth when discussing racism but will move the conversation from racism by introducing LGBT, uh, so-called middle class, etc. And if you are not paying careful attention, you can be fooled into believing that these white people are the coolest. Dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, not surprising that this would be reported. It has been designed that non-white people, specifically black people, undergo daily, weekly, monthly, yearly stress. Although I sometimes think that these things are reported to gauge whether what white people do to cause illness in non-white people is still working or do new tactics need to be thought up. Uh, Did we miss anybody? Anybody have a hand up that we missed completely? We got everybody. Nobody has a hand up that we missed uh, totally. 
right on. Anybody have uh, additional comments they want to get in last 30 minutes? So please do not wait till the last moment if you have commentary you want to get in. Uh, anybody uh, have additional comments they want to make sure they got in? Can I be heard? Go ahead, ma'am. Right on. Thank you so much. Um, let me really quick, y'all. Number one, to the female caller that said that about, or the one that wrote in about the BBC clip, I thought the exact same thing, um, that us not having babies is supposed to solve the problem. Um, but, all right, I know it's not workplace racism. This is Emmy. Um, but I didn't get to call in on Thursday, Thursday to tell y'all what's been going on. So I told y'all about this individual, and I have to because I just walked in a plantation, and my heart rate is really high, my blood pressure is going up, and I'm getting stressed. So last week, there's an individual here. He's, I don't, he's not a suspect. He's a racist. I know it. His behavior, his mannerisms, all his nonverbals, even his verbals, he threatened to kill people, all this craziness. I'm the one over here in the DMV area where I work at is on the VA side. This is an open carry state or whatever. I've seen him. I told y'all this stuff is getting serious over here. Last week, so I have a cold with him. From the minute I saw him and felt him, I need two things. Number one, well, I'm only saying two things to you. Number one, do you need something? And number two, how can I help you? I'm not, like, doing no frivolous talking. I'm not greeting. I'm not doing none of that. What you need, get out of my face immediately. So that's been the code. I haven't done nothing. He gets upset every time I never speak to him. He thinks it's something like I'm really, really supposed to do whatever. I sit at the front desk. I'm not into inviting you to the desk. I don't want none of that. He has a dog. I've seen this dog go off when it sees black people, whatever. My code is not to talk a lot. Everyone knows that I don't talk. I'm serious. Get in the building. Get upstairs. Go to your apartment. Leave me alone. He, I was going to go um, do something on one of the floors. So last weekend, I was around the side of the desk. Like I told you about this dog. So he comes out. The dog rushes out of the elevator. I'm not a fan of big dogs, especially, well, lie. I'm not a fan of white people's dogs. Um, because I don't trust them at all. So anyway, the dog rushes to me. I freeze in my steps. Like I stop so this dog can like sniff me or whatever and chill and back up off me. He come all strutting out or whatever. Like, yeah, my dog and da, 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 da. He passed me thinking I was about to sit there and greet him just because I was on the other side of the desk. I didn't. I went and did. So his whole nonverbal was like, ah, ah, this ain't going to speak to me. No, I'm not. I went and did what I had to do. When I came back, the television was off. The only way to turn the television off is to come behind the desk, get the remote from inside of the desk, which was inside of a drawer or reach over. Either way, that's an area you're not supposed to be in. So he already went ahead and violated that space. I read that as an attack. It's a subtle attack, but it is an attack because it's pretty much saying you don't have space and I'm going to come into your space whenever I feel like it. Ain't nothing you could do about it. But he wasn't there, so I ain't saying nothing. I wasn't there, so it's not like I saw it. I just knew ain't nobody going to the lobby in the little bit of time that I had went upstairs really, really quick, right? So I was like, okay, cool. Yesterday I came in and I made a note. That's, as a matter of fact, my codification for that, I made a note. I put it in highlighter. Look, I don't care what anybody says to me. I'm not dealing with this individual. I don't get paid for that. Like, that is it. So if you're going to fire me, there's a record that I told you because of his previous behavior, his conduct, and the things that he has said, I am not messing with him. Boom, bam, in the notes, moving on. This weekend, he actually, he's a routine. He messed it up or whatever. So he was actually down here a lot earlier. We have, this is a building that loves, uh, allows for people to have dogs. So there's more dogs in here than there are human beings. So there's doggy treats at the front. It's a glass container. He likes to take the top of the glass container and drop it. I don't watch TV in the front lobby or whatever. So it's really, really quiet in the front lobby. So all of that always makes me jump. Like I'm having this like automatic response of like I'm jumping. So I was like, you know what? I just took the glass thing, took the top, moved it, whatever. We're not playing this no more. So I come in today, relieving a girl that gets off 
I worked the overnight. She's like, look, something serious is going on. All of a sudden, I immediately knew it was him. I'm looking at the notes. It's him. He is walking around with his gun holster, his gun exposed. He's threatening, and he's saying people are slashing his tires. Number one, I think he slashed his own tires. Number two, I'm about ready to call the police anyway. Number three, I was quit this job today and take my behind home immediately. I'm not about to die for anything. But they're saying, oh, well, he seems to be calm or whatever, whatever. I'm telling you all because I really don't know, like, what I don't know how to, to feel right now. And that they're going to try to evict them starting on Monday. They got the attorneys or whatever to get them gone. Y'all, I got to be here till 7 o'clock in the morning. This is a man that's irate. He's already, you know what I'm saying? Everything I just told you, I don't want to repeat it again because we don't have a whole bunch of time. But it's on the record. Emmy is letting y'all know it's going down over here in this building in Arlington. So, oh, and I don't have my blazer with the pockets today. I just, you know what I'm saying? But anyway, I done stuffed the mace and the voice recorder in my top so that I can... If I'm not, like, at the desk or nothing, I can just whip it out and go ahead and start recording Mason's behind and call the police. But that's what it is tonight. So I'm on super high alert, and I do not need this. Thank you all for listening. Wow. Take that seriously. I know you talked before about workplace racism, so it goes without saying. But take it seriously. Guns, whites, nothing to play with. This guy has a track record of terrorizing the building. So I think, yeah, you're safety and well-being uh is paramount to anything their little raggedy job and whatever the salary is and uh anything else so if you do not feel safe if you do not feel comfortable uh whatever you deem necessary to preserve your your well-being um i would be at the ready to call the enforcement officials if you have your tactical pin right if he's got a firearm i mean i would really take that i would just assume that he's armed regardless whether you can see it or not i would just assume that he's armed and anything that seems like he's escalating or what have you, I would be taking evasive action and phoning the authorities immediately uh, that he's armed and has a history of violent and reckless behavior. Uh, unless folks had any suggestions, very serious. Do not uh, anytime with white people, really with anybody, but particularly with white people, because it just there have been so many incidents of whites attacking black people for nothing, for no reason. This was a, a black person that they didn't know. If this is a white person who feels like, oh, this uppity nigra has aggrieved me, you know, not speaking to me and, you know, who does she think she is? I'm going to, you know, take her down a few notches. I mean, man, that's nothing that you want to minimize or uh, take lightly at all. It could be life threatening in a matter of seconds. Uh, unless any, anybody have anything they wanted to add to that? I would be on high alert high alert for the uh, duration of the evening if there's anybody else that you can notify i would i would alert everyone that can be notified yes sir thomas in new york oh man feel for that radio as she says going down in the gym um i don't know what to say to do um because my codification might be uh i gotta go i gotta leave i gotta family emergency um I'm not gonna be there for that one. Um, that that's can turn potentially dangerous. If I if you're able to um, and you have someone willing to uh, stay on the phone with you tonight, um, you know uh, maybe a family member or um, something, um, someone you could text during the night just to just to keep um, someone else in contact with you. So if something was to go there, you could have someone um, in your family or your, one of your friends. 
already um, aware of this, and they could make um, some calls if you're not able to leave your job because, you know, this could be potentially dangerous. And I'm on my line. Thank you. Uh, I feel for you. Appreciate that, Thomas, in New York. I know there was a male caller who spoke up simultaneously. Did we have any other suggestions for uh, Emmy and her, uh, in my view, uh, really life-threatening situation, having an armed white person on the premises with a potential vendetta against you specifically? Can I get hurt? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I concur with uh, Thomas in New York. I would suggest to be on the phone with somebody uh, through the night uh, just to be safe. Um, I mean, I've I've quit jobs for lesser, but this is this is extreme. It's very extreme. Uh, your you know your life is on the line. Uh, white people with guns are like mad dogs. You know, I know I'm not supposed to use metaphors, but uh, that's that's the way I treat them. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's uh, I, I concur with him on that one. Uh, I also concur with uh, Kim Steele in regards to Chance the Rapper, uh, victim of racism. Uh, his father uh, is the chief of staff uh, for Rahm Emanuel, uh, race soldier uh, and mayor of Chicago. So, uh, yeah, he's being propped up uh, here in Chicago as uh, – uh, the you know the representative of the black community and the, and the Democratic Party uh, because uh, the Democratic Party here in Chicago has been at the forefront of the gentrification project that's been going on in Chicago. So uh, yeah, I'd be very careful with that. Uh, like I said, he's still a victim of racism, and uh, but he's also being used uh, uh, to. Uh, push forward the, the gentrification of, of blacks in Chicago. So uh, that's all I have to add. The, did we get the, were you the same black male who spoke up simultaneously with Emmy or? Yeah, yes, yes. Awesome, awesome. She got him as well. Uh, we had other suggestions for Emmy or other folks had commentary that they wanted to make sure they got in. We have approximately 20 minutes unless people have nothing they want to add. I also wanted to make sure that I got in about the freelance writers for Ebony. Uh, as a black writer myself, man, I say consistently, I've been saying it, I think almost the entire 2017 calendar year. When I post something that I've written, almost every time it's man. Being a black writer is astronomically difficult, especially if you attempt to talk about racism. Uh, and for these writers to not be compensated, long history of that sort of thing. Uh, and it really doesn't matter whether you're writing for, quote unquote, white people directly, writing for a black, you know, publication or what have you. Uh, it's going to be very, very very challenging if you are a black writer that's i can empathize and not to say that people shouldn't do it but just it is it is not particularly glamorous at all not not much is under the system of white supremacy even being president under the system of white supremacy that i'm sure president obama could tell you is not as glamorous as you would think under the system of white supremacy that messes up a whole lot of things uh we have other folks that have commentary they want to get in yeah, I have one more thing I wanted to say. Um, I don't know if you played a clip on it, um, but uh, we, we saw the free of O.J. Simpson uh, after nine years. I was listening to the case. I mean, it was hard not to. 
like the OJ file is on every channel. It kind of brought back flashbacks. Um, but uh, I, I was listening to the charges. And, I mean, this man, he was nine years in jail for getting back his own stuff. I mean, essentially, it, it was just it was just so egregious to me that this is payback. And uh, everyone knew it, but no one said it. You know, it's one of the reasons why I say all whites are racist. None of the whites I've seen on TV told me during this whole commentary of this thing has said flat out, oh, well, you know, this is pay. He only went to jail because, you know, he got away with um, murdering, they, they, in their mind, murdering those two white people. Um, but I, I, every time I see the OJ thing, being that I lived it, I just want to always put it in context that this man, um, regardless of what the, the, the last, 20 years or so, they've done a huge propaganda program in the mainstream media um, to convince the whole world that he was guilty of a crime he was found innocent of. Now, when Darren Wilson is found not guilty, when um, Zimmerman's found not guilty, we're supposed to just accept that. Uh, white people are not going to accept that, and this was proof of that. And um, if you were alive during this case, there's no way you could have looked at the evidence to thought this man was guilty. The cop that found the gun, I mean, found the glove, has a, a history of racism. They played the Furman tape yesterday. I wasn't able to watch it, but I'll, I, I, I could see it because the mute was on on the television in the hospital. But I'm, I'm very familiar with those tapes. I, was, I think every black person should go and read them and read them in their entirety. Um, and tell me, if you think a police officer who hopped the fence illegally and found some murder weapon at your house who has a, a history of planting drugs and weapons on black people, if that stuff should be held up in court, because it shouldn't. And it was, and he still got off. So I, I, I just have a, a totally different thought about the OJ trial. Everyone from black to white has been on the news, making it seem like he's guilty, and I just don't see it. No one's bringing up the fact that this was definitely racist, um, what happened to him. And the last little point I wanted to make about it, I was watching a Steve Copley video, and OJ was in the, tri- in the crowd. He was paying Steve Copley to find the killers of um, these two people. Now, I can't see OJ affiliating himself with Steve Copley unless he really was really trying to find these people, and I'll meet my line Orenthal James. Yeah, I did not play any clips on O.J. Simpson uh, this week. There have been so many clips. <laughs> I did have his photograph up with the program. And I wrote something about it in the description. But, yeah, that did take up a lot of attention. I even saw the Goldman family uh, on television, and they got to shake their fists for a few minutes and be disgruntled uh, once again, aged 20 years. But, yeah, that was lots of... Uh, reminiscing about the good old days uh, in the 90s. Other folks uh, have commentary they wanted to make sure they got in. We get all the folks. Any additional commentary? Make sure I get in uh, some of the 
from the clips. Uh, we heard a black male officer speaking out about racism, Eric Adams in New York. I know Thomas in New York talks about that consistently. Um, got that on the clip this week as well. Uh, did folks pay attention to the missing black teens from Burundi? This story that I think kind of towards the end of the week came out. I didn't play any clips on it. Uh, but it was right at the end of the week. I posted about it uh, on my Facebook page. I think it was six of them. They were at a robotics competition in Washington, D.C. Uh, they were reported missing. And then they reported that they think maybe they engineered their own escape. Uh, they reported that two of the six uh, were allegedly seen in Canada, uh, they think. Uh, that's been some of the, the know, rumors reporting around all of this, but it was uh, six their uh, black teens, males and females uh, from Burundi that came uh, to D.C. Did folks see this story? I thought that was of note as well. If people didn't see it, that's fine. I know it was, it was within the last 48 hours. Did folks, anybody catch that? Maybe I was the only one that saw it. That's fine, too. Do we have any comments on the Seattle mayor situation? I did think that was really important, and I did make a major error in not paying attention to the uh, victims. Uh, I will say that the photo that they have of Jeff Simpson, at least the first photo that I saw, if I had seen that one, I would not have thought he was a black person. Uh, he looks pretty pale in that one. I think if I had just given it like a quick glance, I would have just thought, you know, oh, okay, this is some white person saying that the mayor raped him when he was young and moved on. You had really, it was the photo that, that Aisha Clay posted of him when he was a child where, wow, really looks unmistakably like a black male. Uh, but the situation with the mayor, I think you can contrast that. Just pick your situation. Uh, if you think a black person could get away with that sort of thing, uh, any number of these different situations, even the with the mayor, the police, you're under investigation for child molestation. Police come to you. This is now a criminal investigation. The police say, we want to interview you. And you get your lawyer to call them and say, he's under emotional stress. He doesn't feel up to it right now. And that's it. Do you think a black person could pull that under any circumstances? Parking ticket. You, uh, you had some sort of moving violation. And... You know, we want to talk to you about, well, you know, I've been, I've been feeling distressed lately. I just, I just don't feel up to it. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> like, can you imagine that any, any additional commentary on the situation with the mayor and the Seattle mayor? I know most of our listeners do not live in Washington state, but I did think that that was really, really informative, instructive about how white power operates. Any thoughts? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Well, I, I guess this is sort of a comparison, but here in Chicago, uh, there was a priest uh, by the name of uh, Daniel McCormick who was for years molesting uh, children. Now, what they found out was he started molesting children at a Catholic parish that was predominantly black. So uh, when they finally investigated, the archdiocese finally investigated, what they did was they transferred him to another black parish, and he was molesting children there. It wasn't until he got transferred into an, uh, to a white parish that he was finally defrocked and charged with molestation. So uh, when, when, you, when, when I heard about that, I immediately thought about the, Dan, the, Dan, uh, the Daniel McCormick case that happened here in Chicago. So uh, that's all I have. Mm. 
I remember with Jerry Sandusky, we talked about that extensive, extensively. We interviewed uh, Robert Dvorak. He was a guest on the program. <clears throat> he was actually he was a guest on the program twice. Uh, we had him on the program towards the end of 2011, and then we had him back on the program in 2012. And he wrote a book uh, called Game Over uh, about Jerry Sandusky and that whole thing. He had been interviewed. He had been under suspicion for years. Nobody said anything. You see the same pattern. And uh, we talked about that. He suspected that some of Sandusky's victims were probably young black children. It was the same thing. He was going the the most vulnerable foster children and that sort of thing where they didn't have a family structure to look out for them and try to keep them safe. Uh, the same type of thing. So long running in the system of, of white supremacy. I thought that in particular, the contrast that that came out this week, these sealed files that they had in Oregon that came out this week to contrast that, as was stated with R. Kelly, very different set of circumstances. Uh, if you are a black person, male or female, contrasted if you are a white person, male or female, and there any sort of suspicion or allegation of uh, sexual misconduct, even, you know, child rape, very, very different how it's going to be handled, processed, thought of in the system of white supremacy. Any uh, other thoughts? Even with, with the situation with Emmy, that's one I might have to even think about Thomas's uh, suggestion. I know for a lot of times, for many, many victims, because of white supremacy, we're not in the best financial situation. I know for many of us, you know, our coins are, you know, a little funny, not quite in the best situation that we would like to be. So we, you know, a lot of times don't want to take off work unnecessarily, but Sometimes if you have the ability to just take a day off or what have you, that might be the best course of action, uh, particularly if it's coming, if it has come to a safety uh, problem uh, where you got, I mean, armed whites on the job is something totally, totally different. Uh, I think my general rule is once it's got to a point where it's physical violence, that's a very different you know, situation because the threat level is so high once it's got to that point. If we're talking armed race soldiers, I mean, that's a whole nother category of physical violence. So I do think that's definitely worth even considering uh you know do we even want to hang out here for how many of hours uh and have the potential of him coming in being violent being white any other thoughts folks satisfied oh uh the person i guess you called in from a blocked number uh on a headset did you have commentary have you heard yes sir sir hey um and my apologies uh the or if, if I'm uh, repeating something, mine is going in and out of the storm in here where I'm at. A young lady at the workplace, come ask you guys uh, about the white man with the gun. Um, is he some type of security guard or something? Because I'm trying to figure out first off, why is he walking around in the workplace uh, with a uh, hosted weapon? Does he say he was some security guard? No, he's not. No, he's not security. Uh, she works at a front desk. Uh, this is uh, a like a high rise uh, where a lot of people reside. So he is a tenant in this facility. He resides there. And I believe she said this is uh, the DMV area, but it's in Virginia specifically. I believe Virginia is an open carry state. So legally as a tenant, he can, you know, walk to his residence with his holstered firearm if he you know has the permit and all that. That's something you could legally do in an open carry state. Uh, but she she shared i don't know if you heard it she shared that there is a history where this guy has been reckless threatening threatening violence before 
And specifically, he's had problems with her where she's developed a code where she's just, I'm going to minimize contact. I'm not going to speak. It's going to be very direct and I'm just going to do my job. Do you need something? May I help you and leave it at that? And apparently he gets upset about that. He wants her to be, you know, servile and, oh, how are you doing? And let me shine your shoes, that sort of thing. So uh, there's a history in terms of him having a specific problem with her uh, and him being reckless and violent in general in the building. And now it's escalated because there were reports that he has a firearm. He, but he is not security. He just lives there. Got you. Got you. Well, and I know we can go um, and um, um, if she hasn't already, um, her immediate, if she's not available right now, but tomorrow or something, her immediate superior, supervisor, uh, get them in, get them involved, ASAP, and get you some record. You know, you're unsafe in the, in the workplace. If not, if they're available tonight, if not, call the police. If the police there, get you some records. What this man is doing, um, and you, and safe you, you feel, and your life is, 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 may or may not be in. Once you have uh, on record um, with the uh, police officers having that, um, uh, you know, down documented to your direct superiors, um, your, your manager um, and manager of the building, and get this, this situation resolved. Maybe you got this tenant and meet of yourself, management, whatnot, and and iron out some kind of way. It, doesn't work. Sorry, I'm just gonna have to part ways. We just can't do business. I have to move on um, because this is not environment for me to conduct uh, myself professionally uh, or safely. So I know we gotta go, but that would be that would be my advice. Can't get nothing done tonight. You call the authorities and go home and take and get a meeting with management. What not next? Can resolve as quickly. And efficiently as possible, if it doesn't get resolved, hey, here's my here's my resignation letter. See ya. It's I mean, and that, again, that's the type of thing that I mean. I think a lot of these type of situations, if you have not, re, if you're not, if you don't have already in mind that white people are extremely dangerous, white supremacy, racism is war against black people. On job situations, I think frequently we just underestimate the type of danger we might be in, much less, you know, problems and things. We just don't take it seriously enough. We just haven't had proper training and people talking to us about, you know, how serious this is. So I, I would I would have just been totally baffled in, if I had been in the situation previously when I didn't understand racism and didn't have proper suspicion of white people. But knowing what I do now, I mean man, I would, it would probably be, if I stayed at all, if I was able to, to stay at all, if that was the decision that I made, it would be the most nervous shift uh, that I ever worked uh, in terms of that's all I would be doing. My head would be on a swivel. Uh, I would already, you know, have written out all my notes to everyone. I would have, you know, 911 on speed dial, my cell phone out, ready to make that call, trying to get other people, you know, that I know so that I could be in contact with them. I mean, I would, uh, I would just be extreme. And she sounded, I mean, when, and when speaking with us, she sounded on edge. I would, I would be, uh, I don't want to say on edge because that might be a metaphor, extremely uncomfortable and anxious, unsafe. Uh, and that's how I would feel. That's how I would process the situation. So, um, 
Yeah, and and, and as, as I said, Thomas might have had, you know, the best advice. Maybe this is not the place to be for the evening. Uh, and, you know, maybe they need to proceed unless this is what they, the the model in terms of what they want to allow, you know, their tenants are just able to roam the, roam the building freely and intimidate others with their firearm on a hip. Well, then, hey, fine, but that's not the place that I want to work. Uh, any any final comments folks need to get in before we conclude? Did we miss anybody? Any final comments? Folks satisfied? I didn't know if I knew. I'll assume folks are good. I think I was just uh, speak or somebody has us on speakerphone. It sounds like in the background. Um, we will be here for Workplace Racism Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Maybe we'll get an update uh, from Emmy, but take that extremely serious. If anything, this is just remind people. That's why I say we should, you know, we cannot, you know, just get excited to talk about the situation with Mike Conley in Area 8. Yes, that might be amusing and serious as well. I mean, that also is an act act of white terrorism. But things that happen on the job to us, I mean, wow, that is is such a monumental source of stress. We talked about black mental health earlier and how that can impact whether you end up with Alzheimer's and what have you, dementia at uh, later in life. It's because of these types of situations. I can't even go and do my job. I'm sure she's not being paid uh, correctly, Emmy. I know she's not uh, being compensated and getting $50,000 an hour or something. So to go into this little raggedy job and to have to be subjected to this type of warfare, <laughs> you got flagrant armed white brutes stomping the, uh, the facility who have a vendetta against you. I mean, yeah, that's why we do workplace racism. Take it very, very seriously uh, and to just have that in mind. That's why I say, hey, the job is nothing to play with. You want to be very, very serious about how you conduct yourself and just having a whole counter racist code of conduct uh, in terms of how you perform in that environment. That said, uh, we'll be back. If you have guest suggestions, if you have problems accessing uh, anything in the archives, Jesse Neville was mentioned. Uh, I'm posting the archive from his visit on the program, I'm putting it on the Facebook page. I'm tweeting it as well. But uh, anyone, if you have problems finding something, just let me, drop me an email. Let me know. And I'll try to help you out. Uh, if you need any other questions answered, if you have guest suggestions or program suggestions, drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. I hope the program has been a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. I will suggest again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I know it's summertime. Great. Have fun. I think I might be going to a barbecue tomorrow. Have fun. Sobriety would be best. I think there's lots of evidence that us being under the influence, tobacco, alcohol, cannabis, whatever the narcotics are, it has not helped us function at a higher level. It certainly has not helped us neutralize individuals classified as white. I think Dr. Welsing, Mr. Fuller, Dr. Cambon, I think they would strongly endorse us exercising sobriety as an act of black self-respect and black economics. That's a lot of money that we can keep out of the coffers of race soldiers. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time 
we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.